My concern on the 10-year time frame, right, is we're already at the point where we're almost taking yields nominally negative on every government-issued uh, fixed income instrument. So if we're there today almost, in, in most places we already are, um, how in the world could the world handle another 10 years of that? And that's where I guess for me, 10 years is kind of like the, the longer time frame because I just don't know how society could, could possibly handle another 10 years of rates. Because uh, I mean, they're not going to stop here. They are going low. Like, they are absolutely going lower for people. And that's when things are going to get really wonky and really strange. You think the, we're in bizarro world right now. Give this another three years and where yeah. they take yields next. You're not going to believe what you see. And I just can't really, I can't envision a world where that lasts more than 10 years from now. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Preston Pish of the Investors Podcast Network and Andy Edstrom, head of Swan Advisor Services, join us. We held a great Q&A session on Twitter Spaces after the episode and included it here for you. So listen on after the episode and enjoy. Hey, Sats fans. What's going on? It's Brady here, head of education at Swan Bitcoin. I'm here with my boys, Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom for our quarterly report. What's up? <laughs> What's up? How are you guys doing? Great. Great as always. Great as always. Yeah. What what a year it's been, Brady Preston. It's been an incredible it's been quite year. Quite a year. And we've been here for it uh, all year long, uh, meeting up uh, once a quarter to hang out and talk Bitcoin and reflect, and then also project into the future. Uh, you guys have made some great calls this year. Got to say, uh, Andy, let's start with yours. Uh, you had a great call in the last episode, uh, in the third quarter, talking about uh, a setup for some uh, cascading liquidations uh, due to leverage. We've seen a couple of incidences of that uh, just in the past quarter or so. Um, so this is something that, you know, you nailed it um, in previous conversation, both Q2 and Q3. Can you just talk a little bit about that call um, and what you learned by seeing it actually play out in, uh, in reality? Yeah, thanks, Brady. And um, it started when I published this article on BTC Times in March uh, called Don't Get Wrecked, right? That was the title. And I talked about the dangers of leverage. And the projection I made was we'd probably get to six-figure BTC, you know, and then we'd get some bear catalyst. And then at some point, the leverage would kick in and there would be uh, there would be pain. So unfortunately, we didn't get to 100K Bitcoin before we got the first leverage liquidation. And that was in... Uh, yeah, that was earlier this year when the mining got kicked out of China and miners had to sell BTC to fund their relocation costs, as well as some other causal factors we've all we all know about. And then, yeah, unfortunately, we got another liquidation uh, more recently. And I don't know, man. I feel like uh, I feel like the uh, the DGen traders just don't seem to learn their lesson. Um, it, it's I feel like it's going to keep happening. Um, you know, I hope that, uh, people recognize the risk. I'm sure there are listeners that have, uh, that have learned the hard way 
And um, yeah, you know, it's okay to know that you're greedy and admit it, and then just take a small piece of your stack and risk it on the on the DGen levered trade. I would just say don't risk much of your stack. Just know you're going to lose it, and uh, you know, and make peace with that. And uh, that's fine, but just know it's a risk. Preston, tell me uh, your feelings about these guys who got their asses handed to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just happy that we're participating in a free and open market. You know, if people want to go here. out there and take a, a lot of risk and a lot of leverage, you know, I'm, I'm here to encourage them to do that. It's not the, the approach that I take. Um, they can just do whatever they want, right? Let's treat people like adults. And, uh, you know, if, if you make a bad decision, you'll pay the price. And I'm here for it. I mean, that's really all I got. Yeah. How do you think that this pattern will continue? I mean, do you think this pattern will continue to play out? Is this what we can expect yeah. uh, from like the behavior of the market now? We're just kind of on this cascading liquidations, build it up, tear it down, drunken the, walk up and to the right. The problem that you have with these particular markets is they're extremely volatile, especially when you're comparing them relative to traditional finance, equity and, and whatnot. Um, and with that, especially when you have something that goes up, on average, about 100% a year uh, for a decade straight is it is a massive incentive for speculators to step in and to just trade the living hell out of it. Um, a lot of them are going to significantly underperform just holding long, um, but they're going to think that they are professional traders. If the index, if the Bitcoin index goes 100% and somebody who's trading it all over the place and actually paying their taxes is doing 70%, they still think that they're a rock star and they still think that they have incredible skills um, because they did 70%. And uh, they're not realizing what the the opportunity cost of just holding long it probably is. And, and some of them are going to outperform, um, which, you know, I would strongly suggest is, is more luck induced than anything else. But you know, who, who am I to, uh, to know one way or the other? I just think that people way overestimate their skill, um, when they're, when they're quote unquote trading based on technical factors, especially, oh, yeah. especially after accounting for taxes. <laughs> if you do account for taxes, which, you know, wrecks so many of the noobs in this space. Um, that's when the, your eyes go wide open. You're like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be trading. Uh, and then you have to sell all the Bitcoin, your precious Bitcoin to pay your taxes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stack and hold. Um, so we had some interesting, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Fed speak uh, yesterday from Jerome Powell, um, indicating they're going to keep rates down, but reduce QE purchases to only $60 billion a month. Um, so risk assets seemed, <laughs> seemed to like this decision, but uh, how do you, how do you guys feel about it? What's your take? Yeah, it was, you know, the markets basically sort of breathed a sigh of relief. There was a lot of anxiety, I feel like, both in equities and in Bitcoin and just kind of risk assets across the board. And I don't know, I think it was Creases, I think it was Creases BTC asked me before the announcement, like, hey, you know, what's your call? And I was like, eh, I don't have a strong view, but like, I kind of think we might get some relief if it's not terrible. And it wasn't terrible. It was kind of all expected. And we got very modest relief rally but then we kind of gave it back today so i guess i can give the <laughs> i give the fed credit for you know telegraphing a message and, and implementing a policy that 
didn't spook markets. Um, you know, we were at 100, they were at 120 billion a month of buys. And yeah, then they stepped it down to 90 and now down to 60. And at this rate, they're going to be done by second quarter next year. And, you know, we'll be in a position potentially to start raising, raising rates. And, you know, the curve has flattened, right? So if you look at the difference between yields on the 10-year treasury and the two-year treasury, they've definitely come in um, quite significantly, although we're not that close to an inversion. I mean, um, I was talking to Tina, talking to Bitcoin Tina the other day. He's 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 pretty worried about the Fed, you know, making a policy error, basically tightening too soon. And I'm I am also somewhat worried about it. I don't see it yet in the in the curve and the steepness of the curve, but but we could get there. So Fed's I mean, they got a they're in a tough position at this point. Right. As we know, generations of Fed uh, Fed chairs and FOMC members before them have dug themselves into the grave or painted themselves into this corner they're in. So it'll be a miracle if, uh, if they can get out of it, you know, without too much inflation or without dumping markets in the long run. So I guess you could say, considering facts and circumstances, this announcement was was pretty well played, but I guess I'll hand it, uh, hand it off there to Preston. So I think, uh, I think it's showing that they're completely inept. Uh, and what I mean by that is you've watched the entire bond yield curve sell off uh, for the most part. The 20-year the and the 30-year has been pretty flat since the, I don't know, what. let me look at my chart here. Uh, since March, it's actually been kind of bidding on the 20 and 30-year. But everything else, shorter duration, has been selling off like crazy. Um, you've watched the three year go from, uh, at the start of the year, you were at about 20 basis points and today you are at 80. So that's a four X move just on the three year. Um, so, I mean, it's selling off and here's the fed sitting there like doing nothing. Right. So the whole market's starting to account for these CPI prints. Our last CPI print was 6.8% and you got the 10 year treasury sitting at 1.43%. So I don't, I don't know, a negative 500 basis point spread to me sounds like we're in crazy town and, uh, and the Fed's still holding at zero. And the, so they made an announcement that next year they're going to, you know, st they're, they're going to start raising rates. They're going to raise it 25 basis points, right? Um, it's a total joke. It's just an absolute joke. And uh, I, I, the only thing that it's showing me, at least, is that they're completely inept that the market's, you know, uh, driving in the, in the seat of the car right now, and they're just along for the ride. So do you think we'll see any raise next year? Uh, yeah, I think you could. Yeah, I think you will. Um, and I think that uh, I think the rest of the market, especially if we continue to see these CPI prints, because I, I don't know. So I, I look at a lot of the gauges, a lot of the commodity gauges, to me, it might seem like uh, 6.8 might be the the highest print that we get uh the next one might come in at a very similar number i'm not really expecting it to be higher if it is it's probably not going to be by much um and i think that that persistence of that of that print in the six percent range is yep. going to really kind of uh rattle a lot of cages because everyone i think i think most equity investors are are praying that it's transitory and that it's going to come back down in like the 3% range. 
And I don't, I don't necessarily see that happening. I think that you're going to continue to see it pretty persistent above 5%. And if true, um, you're going to continue to see all these durations, uh, at least the shorter durations in the curve really sell off. So I think they're going to try to catch up to make it look like they still have some semblance of control. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's going to be the reason why they're not going to be doing it for reasons that the market needs higher rates. The last thing the market needs is, is higher rates because it's, it's, it's already kind of demonstrating, in my opinion, I think it's, it seems like it's starting to sputter out, especially when you get into uh, equity markets outside the United States. The U.S. markets are still, you know, kind of hanging in there. But when you go to all the other markets around the world, they're really kind of uh, demonstrating that, we, that we're kind of at a fever pitch and it's starting to cool off. So just for uh, partly to provide a contrast, and we can uh, compare notes, you know, nine months from now. I'll, I'll take the under on inflation. I'm th my best guess, and look, it's it's a guess. I mean, none of us really know what's going to happen, but my best guess is we get some relief on inflation. You've kind of started to see it in the commodities complex, right? And commodities are just you know one component of of final product inflation, but but commodities have really spiked earlier this year, and they've given up a decent amount. I feel like there might be one more chance of sort of a fake out, you know, down move and in, in inflation, let's say in, in reported CPI inflation. And, you know, let's not get in, <laughs> get into, you know, how that's measured at, at the moment. But, but I feel like there might be one last shot for the, for the fed to breathe easy. And then I could imagine inflation, you know, coming back in a real significant way. Uh, I don't know, later next year or even the the following year. It's sort of too obvious and easy, you know, a uh, uh, trade that, oh, we're just going to go straight up in terms of inflation. I do think that's where we end up, you know, this decade or in the next few years. But I think we might get some significant relief in the latter half of next year. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm with Andy on that. I think that I really do think maybe that the 6.8 that we just had is probably going to be the highest print in the coming 12 months. Yeah. Um, but I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I see it the same way. Um, but when we do go through when it, when it eventually throws the fit, when we have the impairment fit, the credit, you know, meltdown because of the fractional reserve system and, and just how this is constructed. And that's what will happen when it does. The response is going to be gangbusters and it's going to make the covid liquidity pump look like nothing and what you're going to see happen in the supply chains from that response is going to make this 6.8 percent uh number look like a joke in my opinion and that's when it's going to really kind of be the that realization in the marketplace like holy hell what is happening here um as far as a timeline goes you're probably, uh, you know, and this gets like, this is just not something you even want to really try to predict. But if I was going to say the earliest that I think you would see uh, all of that kind of play out, you're into um, you're into 23 at the probably the earliest. Right, Andy? Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with yeah. that. And this is why, you know, it's hard to play the game of, oh, timing, you know, when should I when should I make my next BTC buy? Right. You know, if we finally get a correction that then forces the Fed to open up the floodgates again, you know, might there be a point in time when price dips down and you got your limit orders in and, you know, you pick off some some cheap corn? Maybe. But will that be from, you know, 50K BTC or will that be down from, you know, 80 or 100? 
And so I don't try to get that clever. I just keep stacking. I just keep saving, <laughs> saving in Bitcoin. You Amen. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, if there was one thing, Brady, I'm sorry to interrupt. So if there was one thing that, uh, that could maybe throw a wrinkle in some of this is if the uh, debt markets over in Europe and, and the rest of the world outside of the U.S. get a little wonkier uh, faster than what I'm anticipating, because I'm, I'm expecting to start getting uh, I'm expecting here in the U.S. for your to get a inverted yield curve probably in the summertime frame and maybe into the fall of 22 is what I'm thinking that you might start seeing that the yield curve really get flat and maybe go inverted. Um, and if true, that kind of gives you time in the market for some of this to really kind of play out. But what, what I'm not uh, maybe accounting for is already over in Europe, you're seeing like the 30 year and the, on their bond yield curve, uh, start to break through like 30, 40 year trends that, um, and I mean, they're all just the whole yield curve over in Europe is just compressed down to nothing the, across all durations. And so it's just totally jacked, like yeah. way worse than in the U S <laughs> and so that could maybe be a catalyst to maybe accelerate things a little faster than the timeline that Andy and I are talking, but you know, who knows? How does you, I mean, the dollar system that is intertwined with Europe in, in you know, just in ways that's hard to understand uh, this whole like euro dollar system. And, and there's, you know, amount dollars that are being printed out there that are kind of outside of the control of U.S. banks or the Federal Reserve, uh, which is really interesting. Does that create any additional like risk for the dollar itself and the collapse. Like if, if something happens in Europe, then you've got systemic risk just for the dollar through that Euro dollar system. How would that play out? Or would that even have an effect? I sort of think the opposite, if I understand your question, which is like, there's all these dollar denominated liabilities, right? The world is basically short dollars. And when you get stress overall in the financial system, there tends to be a bid for the dollar, right? People flee to the dollar as a relative safe haven. So yeah, I think actually, if you start to get stress and credit overall, you get a bid for the dollar, dollar gets stronger. Will that eventually, you know, not be the case? Yes, eventually. But, you know, I'm kind of in the, in the Michael Saylor camp at this point, thinking about, okay, the dollar is not going to die anytime soon. Moreover, if and when we get broader stablecoin adoption globally, you know, it's more likely that some of these weaker currencies get picked off. You know, Bitcoin keeps growing in the background. Um, yeah, I don't think that the dollar, I think the dollar could weaken next year. I mean, the, you know, there'll be uptrends, there'll be downtrends, but are we anywhere near the, you know, the death of the dollar or the loss of the dollar's re reserve currency status? I really don't think so. I don't, I, it's possible, but I don't see it happening, you know, in the next few years. I completely agree I, with that. Does, I mean, a lot of nations and corporations would have to agree that Bitcoin's ready <laughs> to take on that role before they would abandon collectively the, the dollar, I think. Um, or, you know, insane hyperinflation would have to hit. But um, is it, I mean, it feels like this decade is gearing up to be uh, potentially that, you know, we've, as we've been talking about as Bitcoiners for years and years and years now, this process of hyper-Bitcoinization it happens, you know, gradually, then suddenly. And even as Bitcoiners, we have a hard time imagining how fast this might actually play out. If we look back, 
you know, in three or four years, and this has played out incredibly fast uh, in the interim, I would say that what is happening right now would be very obvious in retrospect, the precursors to uh, hyperinflationary events that would lead to the death of the dollar in a short amount of time. Um, so I, 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 there's, as Preston likes to say, I think there's a non-zero chance <laughs> that it happens. <laughs> well, what do you, what do you think now, Preston? I mean, I've, you know, I think I've heard you say, okay, maybe we got five years, but may, but probably not more. Is that still kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, I think, I, I think my time frame is five years to probably 10 years on the long time frame. Yeah. I can agree with that. I used to think <laughs> like every, uh, you know excited bitcoiner earlier in my journey i was like it's happening now and uh and now i think yeah five to ten is a is a great estimate but as you point out brady you know we don't know it could happen sooner yeah my, my concern on the 10-year time frame right is we're already at the point where we're almost taking yields nominally negative on every government issued uh fixed income instrument so if we're there today, almost in in most places we already are, um, how in the world could the world handle another ten years of that? And that's where I guess for me, ten years is kind of like the the longer time frame because I just don't know how society could could possibly handle another ten years of rates. Because uh, I mean, they're not going to stop here; they are going lower. Like they are absolutely going lower from here. And that's when things are going to get really wonky and really strange. You think the, we're in bizarro world right now. Give this another three years and where yeah. they take yields next, you're not going to believe what you see. And I just can't really, I can't envision a world where that lasts more than 10 years from now. But hey, who knows? Like, I, I don't know, but I find that to be, <laughs> I can't imagine how weird things would be. I agree. And now I'll layer on, you know, the macro and the geopolitical and, uh, you know, someone who I know has shaped both of our thinking, uh, Preston, you too, probably Brady, that's Ray Dalio. And I just finished his most recent book and, you know, he puts publicly and he admits, he admits this is kind of a finger in the air number, but he puts a 30% chance of each of the following in the next decade. One is hot war with China. And two is, you know, basically civil war in the U.S. Uh, and if those are independent, which are probably not independent probabilities, but if they were, that would say, you know, 50-50 that we're going to face something really, uh, really difficult in this decade. And so if you had, as you pointed out, a long time with zero or potentially even negative rates, and then you layer on, you know, the fourth turning, the end of the long-term debt cycle, you know, potentially hotter conflict that could be the confluence of events or the catalyst for you know things breaking down for the fiat system because that's the dynamic in which now debt claims when there's real conflict either within a nation or among nations the debt claims don't stand up right now it's sort of every man for himself the hardest money you know the type of money that is no one's liability is what people want to hold and uh, yeah, that that's potentially a scenario where uh, where things get real.
Yeah, and on a, and on a lighter note. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we we got out there. We got out there a little bit faster. This is a quarterly review became. Uh, let's let's talk about the future of the entire uh, human race over the next decade or two. Um, but that's what we're here for. I mean, this this is that that is the gravity of of Bitcoin and what we're here for. It's um, an incredibly important moment in time, and it's you have to sit back sometimes, uh, and when your breath is sort of taken away from you when you have a moment of clarity on uh, just how uh, important this, you know, this moment in time is for humanity. It's a true inflection point. Um, let, let's dive back into some Q4 news. Um, this week, the country of Myanmar announced that they'll be adopting Tether as legal, uh, legal tender. Uh, the growth in stablecoins market has been, you know, tremendous over the last several years. Um, it's obviously got a use case probably, you know, beyond seemingly uh, providing liquidity in, crypto exchanges. Um, so Preston recently, you tweeted out about this um, in a response. I think it was to uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth tweet. Do you, you know, do you feel like the stablecoin adoption will speed up Bitcoin adoption or slow it down? would love to hear you expand on, on that uh, question, answer your own question and, and uh, maybe talk about it here with Andy a little bit. Well, there's a reason they're concerned about it. Um, and it's, it's funny whenever they're talking about their concern to the stability of the system, they're more concerned about stable coins than I think they are about Bitcoin. And the reason why is because you're getting that immediate clearance. They're used to adjudicating books each night as they close out and, and allowing time for this fractional reserve system to, uh, figure itself out where there's impairment, where there's not impairment, uh, and almost like a breather into the system. And by them being able to control the rails of the dollar itself and being able to settle uh, not instantaneously, they're able to kind of control and manipulate the market in a way that that keeps stability in the frame of reference. When you start handling uh, a stable coin that immediately clears, that can't be undone. And that's the other really big point about a stable coin. Not only does it immediately clear, but you can't undo it. And... That is something that I think scares the bejesus out of central bankers is this idea that if I send Andy $10 and it immediately clears and he has it, nobody can go over there and claw it out of his account and send it back to me. And it happens near instantaneously. And so when you're in a fractional reserve system, that poses a major issue when they're used to markets being open for seven or eight hours and closed on the weekends and all of those kind of things. That's what they're scared about. And so my point in posing the question, and I didn't answer the question, but I guess I will now, I think it speeds up Bitcoin adoption because what you're now having is the system just starts, uh, think of it like a mechanical system where the pipes are closed off, they're only allowed to flow, and then everyone's making sure that the tanks are balanced, you know, the, the holding tanks are balanced so that there's not too much pressure in the system and it blows. Now you're telling everybody you have to keep all the valves open, and this thing has to perform on its own without interruption. And if there's a systematic air in the plumbing, it's going to burst. And so I think they're very scared to allow all the valves to be opened. And I think they should be. So that's uh, that's just how I personally see it. And you know, when you got Bitcoin running in the background, nobody can manipulate it. It's got a finite number. It's fixed. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of Bitcoin versus a stable coin is as they continue to base the dollar, 
the stable coin supply is just going to keep going up right with it, right? They're going to put more in the treasury and they're going to mint more stable coins and it's just going to keep inflating like the dollar. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if they want to come out with their own, you know, immediately settling irreversible dollar, which irreversible would be a complete misnomer because they're controlling, you know, the protocol itself. Um, you know, like they're going to keep adding more units. It doesn't matter. They're, they can't do what Bitcoin's doing. It's just fundamentally impossible when you look at the fiscal side of, of how they make decisions in the, in the spending habits across the, the globe and the incentive structure for them to keep expanding the credit. So, um, you know, that, those are some of my thoughts on it. And, and when you look at the size of the stablecoin market and how fast it's growing, I think it's, it's just scaring them half to death. And they should be. They should be very scared of this because it's, it's stepping in and it's totally bypassing them. And because it's competitive, and we've talked about the game theory a whole lot, they don't want to not play because they know that if they don't, somebody else is going to step in there and play. And boy, oh boy, that's they're going to lose market share, right? This is a battle for clearance. This is a battle for the network effect of controlling the currency in the, in the settlement layer of the world. And if they don't play the game, they're going to, they're going to get beat out by the other players that are, that are vying for it. It's well a pretty said. cool development, Andy. Um, you know, I I didn't personally see Tether being adopted as as a you know legal tender, um, but it makes sense. You know, in retrospect, um, it is obvious to me. Uh, so it's it's interesting development. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear you riff on what Andy had to say and you know, just give your take in general. Yeah, no, Preston nailed it. And the only thing I would add is. You know, Tether is still pirate coin, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a stable coin, but it's it's the non-compliant stable coin, and um, so it makes sense that it's being adopted by a government that is sort of on the fringe, let's say, uh, at least of uh, Western, uh, you know, the Western geopolitical sphere. And it's a good reminder, I think, to me of how the U.S. has abused the government has abused its weapon of sanctions and cutting countries off from the global dollar system i think that that's one of those weapons that you use sparingly and uh the u.s has not used used it sparingly right the government has not used it sparingly we you know basically it gets used all the time and countries are forced into a position of routing around you know they really want to use dollars because they're short-term stable in purchasing power and they're generally accepted, but uh, Tether is this uh, is this unique, interesting beast that has managed to generate a ton of market share. I don't know, seventy-two or seventy-five billion dollars worth. And I do expect uh, I do expect compliant stable coins to be a much bigger deal. And I do expect USDC to to sort of continue taking share of the overall stablecoin market, but. Um, yeah, we should not be surprised that Tether, in retrospect, as you say, we should not be surprised that Tether is getting broader, broader adoption, adoption, especially among countries uh, that have, let's say, spotty access or worry about their access to uh, to the U.S. dollar system. But yeah, I, I was surprised. I mean, I did not anticipate that happening. <laughs> but I was also I think- surprised by El Salvador adopting Bitcoin this year. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Preston. Oh no, I was I was just gonna say I think it's a little bit of a risky move by them 
to specifically choose Tether because, you know, if the Fed gets upset with this this decision and they want to go play hardball and they want to try to shut down Tether, now you've got a country that's relying on this, this um, legal tender uh, token that basically just got chopped right at the knees um, because the Fed can do that. They can, they can shut off, they can claw their treasury, Tether's treasury of dollars right out from underneath of them. And uh, then, it, then, it gets, then it gets nasty for that stable coin. So where Andy's talking about the policy, I agree with him. I think that this is where it's going to be really interesting to see how the entities that are managing these various stable coins, and Andy mentioned USDC, and I agree with him. I think that they, they seem to be playing the politics uh, best out of the stable coins that are out there. And it's going to be interesting to see which one, because I suspect what's going to happen is you're going to have the U.S. and, and other government entities that are going to say, all right, we like you, you seem to play nice, and you are now going to be an accredited uh, entity that can deal with stable coins, and you're going to listen to everything that we say. And if you don't like it, we're going to shut you down and we can pick somebody else that, that will play with us. Um, and I think that that's where it's going to get a little interesting on the stablecoin market. And a lot of a lot of these other tokens, I don't think they really understand the power that the Fed has at controlling those specific rails. And in the background of all this is Bitcoin, which is just like nobody can shut that down. Right. Like you can, you cannot shut down Bitcoin. But these other things that that rely on treasuries with dollar deposits that the Fed can either say yes or no, whether they actually sit there or not, um, I think that's a very important consideration as you're thinking about stable coins. 100%. Andy, uh, this past month, you hosted a fundraiser for Erica Rhodes. She's a candidate for Congress uh, running in a primary against Brad Sherman, who is probably like the biggest Bitcoin hater in the government. Uh, if not, you know, one of the top three. Um, and this year we've seen definitely the emergence of Bitcoin as a political issue. Um, and lots of politicians have spoken out about Bitcoin, shared their their uh, their thoughts. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton came out and obviously made a very like a planned sort of presentation of the narrative that she wants to establish. Uh, and probably others, um, you know, <clears throat> um, will follow her suit. Uh, couching Bitcoin is, you know, causing instability and you can, you know, it's so obvious setting it up uh, for this, you know, financial instability that we're already in and, and headed into um, much deeper uh, to be blamed on Bitcoin. Um, so that will certainly be happening uh, more and more over the next few years. Um, it, it's interesting, though, because Bitcoin is uh, it defies, you know, um, categorization on a political front like you can it's you can make arguments like the positives of bitcoin you know arguments for bitcoin fall into narratives on both sides of the political spectrum um and i think it's really interesting to watch it develop um just to see how bitcoin is like presented in the political sphere uh and i do think it's important potentially to how bitcoin is adopted not if bitcoin is you know works or wins or whatever but but how it does um could have a big impact on how it's you know adopted in this country for instance and around the world uh so i think it's important personally that we work and and there you know i know you're uh, on board with this and there are coalitions that are developing to work to try to make Bitcoin a bipartisan thing um, as much as that can, can that can happen or uh, that can be helped anyway. 
Um, would love to hear your take on Erica and just you know the bipartisan Bitcoin push in general. Yeah, so I agree completely with you, Brady. And you know, one of my personal missions is to do my tiny part to help make sure America is safe for Bitcoin. And it already is, right? Things are looking good. A bunch of mining moved to this country. Uh, you know, all signs are that we're going to have peaceful adoption. But given that Bitcoin has already won, which I think it has, I think we can get to mass adoption the hard way or the easy way. And so I feel that, you know, if any of us can do our small part to take the easy path, um, that's worth doing. Um, so that's a big part of why I support Erica. Um, Erica is both running against Brad Sherman, so that's reason enough to uh, to support her. But she's also, I mean, her her enthusiasm is infectious, and um, she's a teacher. I have a, a soft spot for educators. She's big on financial education specifically, and I really do believe that the lack of financial education in our primary and secondary school system is a major factor for why this country is so far in debt, right? It's a major factor in, in why a large portion of the population is basically working day and night, you know, just to service the, uh, the, uh, the unsustainable debts they've taken on, whether it's credit card debt or education debt, et cetera. So, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people doing good work on this, you know, CJ and Amanda Cavallari and uh, Dennis Porter and, um, yeah, I'm I'm heartened to see a little more work and more actual organization on the uh, on the political front, and I I sort of reject the idea that oh you know we should just hide in the shadows and let Bitcoin win and you know burn the system down. Um, I'd rather stay in the U.S. Um, I have a family, I got kids. Um, I'd rather make this uh, you know I'd rather this transition be as uh, as peaceful as possible. Preston, what do you think, man? I don't think I've heard you talk much about like your thoughts on Bitcoin and politics. And I steer. You know, if you don't from, want to talk about it. I, I understand. <laughs> I steer away from politics at, at every opportunity. Um, <laughs> I I will say this: I I I'm a fan of of her, and uh, hopefully we can get some memers to help her out. Um, I think that if there's anything that she wants to step up her game, you know, and, and obviously she doesn't need to elicit this. We just need the memers of the community to go in there and find out who Sherman's biggest uh, donors are and, the, you know, just work their magic. And they can, you know, they can come up with way more creative content to sway this than probably anybody else. But um, I obviously want people that are pro Bitcoin. I want people that are pro free markets. I want people that uh, would like to, and this, this one's a real stretch, uh, term limits, I think, are one of the critical variables that are wrong with the system today. Uh, we don't need people that are, that are trying to be uh, career uh, elected officials for their whole life um, because we need people to make bold decisions and decisions that aren't based around their next re-election campaign. Um, if they can't balance a budget, there needs to be some type of lottery system that uh, makes it inhibitive for 10% or 15% of them to be reelected. That would be completely lottery based. Um, there's some things that need to happen. Uh, but, you know, that's that's about the extent of what you'll get out of me. No, that was great. That was great. Um, Dave in the in the chat said age limits. Yeah, I actually tweeted this out. I think we oh, should God, have age yeah. limits, age maxes. We have age minimums. I think it's like 25, 30, 
25, 30, 35 for the House, the Senate, and the President. Um, and so if we have minimums, we should have maximums. And uh, I tweeted that out. And then, uh, you know, by, I'm sure, coincidence, uh, Elon Musk tweeted the exact same thing out like three days later, almost word for word. So um, I don't know. I think he's... He's, he's watching my account. It. He's stalking. Like stock. He's yeah, with with one of his like anime accounts or something. Clearly. Uh <laughs> uh Preston. One of his okay. dog coin, dog coin accounts. Yeah, one of his dog coin <laughs> accounts. He really liked the idea. Uh so let's I wanted to go into this thread um that uh, Preston posted this week. I, I loved it. It got me all fired up. Um it was it was just a really great way to present this data uh it, it was a very effective way to present this data it just like it, it was like one punch landing after the other and then it was just like this final little like death blow at the end uh and i, I hadn't gotten so excited about a thread for, for a little while so i'm gonna share <laughs> i'm gonna share my screen and uh well let's just talk through this i know andy will have some commentary on it too okay so uh you know in general i was trying to just model all of the um all of the the market cap for equities across the whole globe and it's a, it's a little tricky to do and so i was just going through it and i was like all right so i just i got to make sure that these are weighted and whenever i'm looking at all the different indexes on on one chart the thing that i didn't like about it was the the weighting so like you're you're seeing maybe india blow out and it's just booming right and well that's just such a small market i think it's only like 2 to 3% of the overall global economy is the is that market cap right and so i wanted to weight it and whenever i weighted it all and i cons compressed it into a single line um what i was really trying to understand is are, are we starting to see a cap or are we starting to see a top in equities from a global perspective and the reason why i was trying to understand that is because i'm looking at the us it's still booming it, it looks like it's starting to roll over a little bit and now that the fixed income market's starting to tighten, you're starting to see the Fed say that they're gonna even, you know, start to tighten the federal funds rate. I'm thinking, okay, this might be getting very toppy, but I wanted to see it from a global perspective because maybe, maybe Europe, maybe Japan, maybe China are already uh, selling off in a more aggressive way because those are the main ones that are really kind of driving the global economy outside the US. And so I just wanted to consolidate it all into a single line. And so when I did that and I saw my thesis and what I was expecting is that we were kind of topping out was true. And as you, uh, scroll down just a little bit more, scroll down one. Yeah. Keep going. One more. Yeah. Uh, one. one more. <laughs> this one right here, there we go. Uh, that yeah. one. So I, when you look at that, that chart right there, you can see that it's really starting to look like a top from a global perspective. And so I was just like, ah, you know, let me just readjust this for M2. And I was just kind of curious what it would look like. And if you go to the next one down from there, um, it was kind of insane what I saw. And I was like, holy hell, from the bottom of the 2009 crash, and I'm talking the bottom, not the top, uh, we are completely flat from that period of time when you readjust the global equity index. Um, against M2. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is crazy, right? And I wanted to present it because everyone, what everyone sees is that first chart, which is the NASDAQ or whatever local yeah. uh, stock index that they're <laughs> accustomed to in, in their country. And it's just going straight up. It's going parabolic. 
Yep. But whenever you adjust it for all these other things, you're literally flat from the bottom of 2009. And I was just like, this is crazy. Right. Absolutely so I tried nuts. to lay, I tried to lay it out in a thread that kind of like walked, walked the reader through my discovery process of like how I was uh, trying to solve the puzzle of kind of like understanding where we're at in space and time. And what I found and what I discovered, even for myself, I remember sitting there looking at the chart and I said, oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> That's the this same experience crazy. I had. Yeah, yeah, this is wild. Yeah, I, for those of you listening over on Spaces, uh, I'm, uh, we're going to try to throw it up into the nest. If not now, then when we come over for the Q&A and on the podcast, it'll be in the, in the show notes. But definitely go through the thread and uh, Preston cooked up these charts and it's, it's uh, very impactful uh, a chart you know speaks a thousand words for sure um and then in and then of course the you know the kind of closing salvo is uh you know let's let's take a look at the how this affects you know the it, bottom line the real world right and, and this is this is one of my favorite things that uh michael saylor has really kind of introduced to the community is this idea of inflation being a vector and so when you're adding all these units into the system um where where are they ending up right and who has the first cut of selecting where they go next and when you walk through that process and you realize how much quantitative easing has been used over the last decade you quickly realize that where all these fiat units that are being added into the system are ending up they're ending up straight into assets and it's it's just when you walk the dog and you follow the the path of how these units are are going they're going in and bidding asset prices. Now, whenever that happens, with what's, what's taking place is you're clawing that out of the hands that was somewhat distributed 10 years ago. Uh, and 10 years before that, it was even more distributed amongst the population. But as you continue to exercise these policies, what you're doing is you're just polarizing the, the ownership of anything that's equity-based and debt-based straight into the hands of the few and, uh, you know, it's making it harder and harder for everybody else. And so when you're looking at like the velocity of money, a lot of people hate that term velocity of money. But when you look mm -hmm. at that and you look how it just keeps going down, uh, that's why is because they're they're having difficulty adding units into the system and it actually trickling down into the, the populace. Instead, mm -hmm. it's just going into the hands of the few and they're just, OK, well, I'll just buy more equity, which will generate more cash flow for me and it'll generate higher market caps and, you know, I'll, I'll go out and buy another three yachts, I guess. I mean, at, at what point, how many yachts can you buy and before you just say, yeah, you know what, I'll just buy more stock in Apple or whatever. It's such a monumental crime. It's a, it's, it's fixing on the grandest scale possible, <laughs> fixing a game. Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's take a quick break there. That was fantastic. I, I, hold on. I didn't give Andy a chance to uh, weigh in on the, yeah, I mean it's a really sobering sobering analysis that that Preston has presented here and um I guess my thoughts are one, yeah, not not only is it clearly the Fed's, you know, not only clearly is the Fed exacerbating wealth inequality, making the rich richer, but they're denying it as they go and that they were they recently, you know, announced some social or ESG mandate. I can't remember the exact uh, you know, the exact uh, statement, but it was like basically they were saying, you know, we're we're here to uh, to to help with this, uh, you know, equity problem or, or social problem. And it's like, no, guys, if you want if you want to help, like stop printing money, stop it with the QE <laughs> um, right. and let the, and, uh, and let the zombies die. Yes. Like, you've got to let the zombies die. Yeah. And um, the other thing it brought to mind, too, is 
yeah, when you look at where value has accumulated in the last decade, um, if the total, as Preston points out with those data, if the total trend versus M2 is flat or down, you know, then what does that mean? Well, it means while the S&P and specifically the NASDAQ and the tech and software sector have made attractive returns, it means everything else has been, you know, crap, right? It means everything else is going down in relative terms or in, um, I don't want to say absolute terms, but maybe like absolute, you know, monetary base adjusted terms. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a fund manager that some of my clients are invested in. And a few years ago, you know, I, I sort of prodded him. I asked him the question and the question to him was like, you know, what if Mark Andreessen is, is completely right and software eats the world? And what if literally every dollar or more than every dollar of market cap creation just accrues to software, right? Like if, if the overall you know, stock market goes up by X percent, or let's say the S&P goes up by X percent over a period of years. What if all that gain accrues to uh, to the big software guys? And so far lately, it kind of looks like that, like that's playing out. And partly that's a U.S. story, right? Like obviously the biggest internet giants and software giants are, are U.S. based, which tells you a little bit about why the NASDAQ um, and the S&P have outperformed compared to foreign markets, which have been really disappointing for the last decade. Um, but yeah, it just it just puts that all in uh, in perspective. And it does make me worry that, uh, you know, everybody feels r richer, right? Because uh, because these asset prices, at least in the U.S., are, are going up. And yet when you adjust it to the monetary base, as, as Preston points out, it doesn't look that great. It's terrible. It's awful. Um, a little, let's take a quick break. We're going to do, uh, have a, a little interim here. That's a little bit more cheery. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more, uh, a few more questions here for these guys. Then we're going to head over to tw uh, Twitter spaces and there's, uh, three or 400 of you over there right now. Uh, and everyone on YouTube and wherever else you're watching can head over to, uh, Twitter at Swan Bitcoin and join, uh, and ask, ask some questions to, uh, to press and Andy. It'll be a lot of fun. All right. We'll be back in just a couple minutes holiday season, give the gift of Bitcoin to your loved ones. Swan delivers your Bitcoin gift along with our world-class education and client service. Create a Bitcoin gift and wrap it with a custom message for your family and friends. Dash away with your gift. Your recipient will receive an email right away that easy. Give the gift of generational wealth. Give Bitcoin. Okay, that's shorter than I thought, but that was pretty good. We have a uh, good job, Brecky. Good job, Mike. This, this is a really nice little ad. Swan has uh, brought back gifts. So uh, you can go into your Swan account and give a gift to anybody. You'll get an email. You can schedule it uh, for when you want it to arrive on uh, Christmas morning, perhaps. And, um, you know, we'll obviously carry them down that path to becoming a Bitcoiner and uh, help you carry, uh, you know, help you walk them along that path, uh, I should say. So really excited to bring this back to the product. Of course, Swan was born out of Give Bitcoin, which was, you know, simply a, a product to allow you to give Bitcoin to your friends and family, uh, became Swan. And now we've kind of brought it full circle. So excited to see gifts back into the app. <clears throat> All right, guys, 
we talked earlier in Q1 uh, during our Q1 quarter report about the appointment of Gary Gensler uh, as SEC chair. And you both thought that it was a good thing for Bitcoin, um, that obviously he was, you know, understood Bitcoin, well-researched. He taught a class on, on crypto and blockchain at MIT, et cetera. Uh, so after a year uh, or so now, uh, what do you think about Gary's uh, impact on Bitcoin? And uh, what do you think he might, how do you think he might impact it to over the next, uh, you know, year or two as he, you know, continues to be the SEC chair. Uh, let's kick it to Andy first on this one. Yeah, I think that Gensler is behaving like a democratic regime regulator, which is actually doing stuff. <laughs> I mean, you know, under Republican regimes, you tend to have relatively hands-off uh, from the regulator. That's what we saw um, with Clayton um, under Trump. And now there's a new cop on the beat. And he's saying more aggressive things, although I don't know that we've seen all that much action. So, so far, he's more hat than cattle. Um, I do think that there's never been a better time to be a Bitcoin-only company, right? Because, yes, most digital assets, crypto assets were definitely illegally issued securities, probably still are. The only reason they wouldn't currently be is because you know by some exception they're deemed decentralized enough so i am still optimistic that we're going to see more enforcement actions against you know the frauds basically although we haven't really seen that much so far so those are my current thoughts so preston give us your thoughts but also touch on uh the ETF issue. I mean, that's kind of the biggest, I think, you know, if he's going to do thumbs up or thumbs down to a spot ETF next year, I'd love to hear what you think. I, that one I'm frustrated with. I'm sure people have seen me kind of beating them up on Twitter from time to time on that particular issue. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and it seems like it's more of a bureaucratic political play between him and the CFTC or something. I, I don't really know. Um, you know, I, I do like the fact that Gary actually knows what he's talking about with respect to the topic um, with Bitcoin. And he seems to be very pro Bitcoin, um, not the rest of the not the rest of the space, the digital asset space with with respect to how he pretty much wants to regulate everything else. Uh, and for me, that's that's perfectly fine. I really don't have a whole lot of interest in, in some of the other things today. And I think that they are very much equity like. And so, um, you know, that that's really his position now where I'm a little uh, interested. So we're getting through this current administration pretty fast. Like time is time is moving out. And if he's going to do something, he's going to have to do it here pretty soon. And I think I'm more concerned about, you know, who follows this administration. What's that person like? How much do they actually know about the space? Or is it just, you know, some type of political favor of somebody who's put in charge? Um what agenda do they have? Uh, I'm more concerned about that than I am with Gary Ginsler. I think that uh, in in general, if you're a Bitcoiner, uh, I don't really see that much to be concerned about. All right. I think maybe the biggest news of the quarter, um, at least so far, we still got two weeks to, to top it, is the Bitcoin bond. Um, 
So El Salvador, just to recap really quickly, issuing um, a Bitcoin-backed bond for a billion dollars, 500 million backed by Bitcoin, another 500 million dollars used to uh, for infrastructure, for mining and Bitcoin City, et cetera. Um, interesting way that it's set up. Uh, we talked last uh, two weeks ago on the show on the last episode with with Adam Back and Lynn Alden about the bond in, in depth. I uh, would love to hear what you guys uh, think about it after kind of consuming uh, takes from, you know, from Blockstream and El Salvador and some of the other like, uh, you know, bond experts, financial experts in the industry. Uh, I know, um, uh, Preston, you did a show as well. So, um, what do you guys think about the Bitcoin bond? How big of a deal is it just for Bitcoin, but also for the world and the financial system as a whole, it seems pretty innovative, uh, and amazing that it happened like the same year became legal tender. This is maybe a bigger deal than legal tender. Preston, let's, uh, start off with you on this one. I don't think it's a bigger deal. I think that it's just kind of demonstrating to the overall market, especially for small nation states that maybe are very reliant on the IMF, um, that, hey, there's another way to do business, especially if you have some type of natural resources that you can harness uh, through the mining process. Because I think Blockstream, I think a lot of these uh, mining companies that would like to you know, supply a turnkey solution for a nation state that wants to do something similar uh, is there. I think a lot of nation states might not have the ability to uh, push something through as aggressively and as decisively as El Salvador, and that's probably why you don't see them doing it. But what I think you might find is with time and uh, with what we all kind of expect to kind of play out with the price action on Bitcoin, there's going to be this really unique and demonstrative situation where they can see the results of doing what El Salvador did. And I think that's when it's going to really start to take off, not by just one other country, but you're going to see them probably come at, you know, five at a time or, or 10 countries that are just like, hey, we're going to do that same thing that they did. And especially when you look at how this this has the potential and Adam Back has done the math and and shown, you know, based on a, a modest price appreciation in, in Bitcoin, um, this could pay off all of El Salvador's sovereign debt. Uh, within, I think, the the duration of, of the bond itself, which is a 10-year bond. So that, to me, I think five years later, you're really going to kind of see how smart of a decision this is. I, I see it as an insanely smart decision, um, and it's going to be amazing to watch the rest of the market kind of sit back and watch and then probably trip over themselves to implement something similar. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think I saw you compare microstrategy in El Salvador, which makes a lot of sense that, you know, El Salvador is like the microstrategy of nation states. Um, and they're very similar in the sense that they have a, a visionary leader who, that developed conviction, you know, relatively quickly and deeply and has taken action based on that. And uh, so they are leading the way. I think we all thought that, you know, microstrategy would uh, sort of usher in this 2020 of just, you know, fortune 500 companies, like, you know, 10, 20% of them getting Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Uh, but that's just how far ahead they are of their peers. So, um, they're, they're leading the pack and it might be quite a while until we see it happen, uh, with another nation state, but Andy, uh, what's your take on the Bitcoin bond? Hi, Natalie. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Look, I really don't have much to add, um, to what Preston said and, Probably most people listening to this have already heard the episode that Preston did with Adam and Samson. If you haven't, you definitely should. Um, it was a great one, and um, yeah, I I really don't have much to add. I like the framing that it's that it's uh, you know the innovative nation state version of uh, of sailor and microstrategy, and 
Bukele is smart and, um, you know, the Blockstream team are there to uh, to help innovate and build on Bitcoin. And uh, it's good for the whole system. And um, yeah, I hope to see more coming. I wish I knew when it was when it was going to happen. I know it will happen, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see who's next. All right, so we got into mining, touched on mining there for a moment. Um, and, you know, I know that Preston has said that that mining sets the floor, miners set the price floor. Um, so, we, you know, we've got to talk about probably, you know, one of the major events of Bitcoin this year for sure is the, the hash rate fallout in China after the ban. And we're back at all-time highs now, um, what, four or five months later. Uh, and it's amazing to, to witness and watch the, you know, system do its work and the game theory play out it's just it's just beautiful to watch as a bitcoiner um preston what do you think this development means for price action moving forward in like the medium term the hash rates back up to where it uh it was during right right at the point of the ban and uh just thoughts on you know mining in general i think we're all sort of opening our eyes to uh what Bitcoin mining uh, could actually mean for the world uh, in terms of like energy uh, development and, you know, financial development with the Bitcoin bond. And it just seems more and more possibility opening up all the time on the mining front. So uh, putting the price aside, just looking at how many miners are back online, um, the fact that you have everybody tripping over themselves in order to capture the, the current profitability that's there to me is probably the most important piece of all of this because what it's demonstrating is that the incentive structure to secure the network and issue more uh, more Bitcoin into the network uh, to get us to the 21 million cap, it's all still in place. It's still functioning as it was designed and as expected. That's important. Fundamentally, that's that's really important, regardless of what, you know, narratives or whatever we think the price action that's associated with that mining capacity. Um, when I'm looking at the floor and I still think that that's, uh, you know, it here's the rationale why I think that it sets the floor. When I look at the price chart of Bitcoin and I zoom way out and I look at the 10 year view and you plot it in log terms. I've just personally, I've never seen a chart that looks like that in my entire life. Um, I mean, it looks exactly like Metcalf's law, the way that it's uh, moving. Um, it, at certain points, kind of in the middle of the, of the four-year cycle, it almost appears like the price just kind of grinds along the bottom of this trough. And then uh, after you get through another halving event, it kind of spikes and does its thing. And that's kind of where we're at right now is it spiked up. Um, we didn't get nearly the kind of jump in the same time frame that we had on the previous cycle. Uh, and I have no idea. Maybe the maybe the uh, the China event was a tripping incident where, um, you know, a lot of your speculators were taken out of the market and, and we never got the final push like we did in the previous four year cycle that that could play out. That'd be very you know reasonable to me that, that we would see that. I suspect based on that floor that tracking that model when you go out and you really zoom out and you look at that floor right um when i look at where the price would be at a at a minimum and kind of a threshold level at the end of this four-year cycle that we're in right now i'm looking at a price of like one hundred and thirty thousand, somewhere around in that range 
So between now and call it May of 2024, whatever the the current uh, mathematical estimate of of when the four-year cycle would be over, um, that's kind of where I'm looking the price to be at a minimum based on the thresholds that we've kind of seen historically. Now, um, when I look at the uh, March of 2020 event where you had the global economy go through a massive credit impairment event, you did see Bitcoin spike below that threshold, but it was it was very short lived. I mean, it was only there for a couple of weeks and then it was already back up above that that kind of threshold that it kind of grinds. Uh, I, I call it like the grinding price threshold. <laughs> so today, so people might be wondering, so what is that today? Um, today, when I'm looking at the chart, uh, that's around twenty five thousand seven hundred dollars today. So could the price go down to that? Sure. It wouldn't surprise me if it did. Um, if we went through a, another big kind of liquidity event. Um, so it, it, it's really kind of in the middle of these ranges that it has performed historically throughout, uh, you know, these events. Sounds like Andy back there. <laughs> yeah, Andy? Are you guys hearing that? There's some, <laughs> there's an event going on downstairs in my co-working space. Um, I will mute myself after I hand this off to Andy. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about the China ban and the mining, uh, you know, uh, resurgence that we've seen. And uh, and and Preston was getting into the four-year cycle, uh, you know, kind of price cycle stuff. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, maybe now that we're in a new in new territory, that the market's changed. It's it's kind of grown past this past a point to where um, that that four-year cycle, you know, maybe not play out so much anymore. And we're going to be in this sort of like, uh, you know, cascading liquidations and building that back up and just kind of like this walk of liquidation events uh, up and to the right. Um, do you think that there we're at some kind of kind of fundamental change to the way the market works in terms of uh, price discovery? Yeah. So, so mining and then that big question. <laughs> yeah, a few thoughts, a few thoughts. <clears throat> so I'm sort of a skeptic of the notion that there's any floor on the price of Bitcoin related to mining. Um, I mostly, I kind of think it's demand driven. I do think that hash rate responds to price, which just, you know, responds to demand because supply obviously is fixed. Um, so yeah, I, I assume that there's no bottom to the price of Bitcoin and that it can go down to any level and I act accordingly. <laughs> that's why I don't use leverage, for example. Um, so that's one, um, definitely, you know, the, the China event pulled the rug out of some things that were going on. And I, I think this is part of the story of why we haven't seen any fast followers to the Michael Saylor strategy, which is I got to believe that when he did that um, informative webinar, I think it was back in February where he basically opened up the playbook and was like, you know, Hey, here's how we did this. Here's the, here's the accounting and the compliance and the custody and all these issues that we went through as a board and, and here's how you could do it, you know, rest of the world, S&P 500, et cetera. I got to believe there were companies that were starting to run the traps on that stuff. And then we got this liquidation and they said, oh, hmm, uh, let's uh, take that off the top of the board agenda and <laughs> just see how this goes. So, you know, that may have that the event basically may have set back corporate balance sheet adoption, at least public company corporate balance sheet adoption, you know, by another nine months or whatever. I mean, we, we may have reset the clock in terms of uh, seeing steadying of price and seeing boards get comfortable with that. So I think that's another consideration. And then, yeah, as far as the price cycle is concerned, I do think you have to account for change in structure. So 
if the floor before was set by hardcore hodlers who had conviction, and by the way, had conviction and also had liquidity to sort of incrementally buy the bottom, or at least had enough runway, uh, you know, and income in their lives such they didn't have to sell the bottom. They could just just hodl through. Um, I think now you've if if the institutions are coming in, and I think they are, then I do think you are likely to have some bottom buyers that are not constrained in the same way that you know retail sort of FOMO uh, momentum chasers were. In other words, I do think you see behavior changes amongst the investor set, and that's to be expected as Bitcoin gets globally adopted. So, um, yeah, I don't assume anything about the future and the size of the, or sorry, the duration, the cycles, or the magnitude of the downturns and the upturns. I do think it's very possible that we've seen a change in market structure that could lead to uh, less severe downturns as well as a lack of real blow-off tops like we've seen in prior cycles. But, you know, we'll just have to see. Which makes it, which by the way, makes it interesting, you know, to be an investor in Bitcoin, which is, you know, people always ask like, well, like even my colleagues ask me, well, hey, Andy, you're always bullish on Bitcoin. Like there's no price you won't buy. And, and part of me is like, yeah, that's kind of true, except for if we see the blow off top, right? If price doubles in a month, let's say, I mean, that's kind of a rough heuristic. Then I get nervous, you know, then maybe I want to take a little uh, exposure off the table. We haven't seen that yet. And I don't know if we'll see it. I expected to see it, but now I'm not so sure. Just ask them how their CAPM models are doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we've had the discussion. We've had the Preston Pitch discussion of uh, of the fixed fixed income market is, is dead. <laughs> Get out, right? Value investing. Ask them, how ask them how their 2% IRR on whatever company they're buying uh, marries up to their inflation print of 6.8%. Yeah. There's it's some fun. elephants in the room that they don't want to talk about. NGMI. Truth hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Truth hurts. Truth bombs for, for, for Preston can be painful. Well, you know, I love that uh, Preston got uh, a shout out to uh, one of our listeners' wives tonight. So you got the, uh, you got the radio Preston voice. That was quite a, <laughs> quite a little gift for your wife. Uh, we are going to head over to the NFT after party. It. NFT that, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> NFT that. Take that. Hello, Natalie, and NFT it. Um, let's head over to the after party on Spaces. Uh, I'll sign us off here. I'll let you guys uh, jump off and uh, pop in over there. I will be there in just a moment. Thanks so much uh, for your time, as usual, guys, and uh, looking forward to hanging out a little bit more. Thanks, Brady. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, everyone. That's the end of the show portion of Swan Signal Live. This was episode 72, quarterly report uh, with Preston and Andy. Uh, I think this is the fifth or sixth one we've done. We'll continue to do them. They're always a lot of fun uh, format to take a look at what's happened in the past quarter, uh, take a look at calls that those guys have made in uh, previous episodes and check in on those and, and make new calls. Uh, always have a lot of fun hanging out with these guys. And we do a prime time, which is fun. Uh, so... Uh, remember, we have gifts going on right now, uh, Bitcoin gifts, as easy as it can possibly be. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash gifts, G-I-F-T-S, and uh, you'll be able to just send off some Bitcoin to a family member, a friend, somebody who needs some Bitcoin in their lives, which is everybody. 
and I think it makes a great gift. You can schedule when you want that uh, gift to land in their email inbox, and they will get a course of uh, emails uh, once they accept that gift uh, from us, uh, walking them through what Bitcoin is and why it's important and how to you know, self, why, how to self custody. Eventually we get there. So we go through the whole gamut. Um, and we're here to help your friends and family kind of along that journey. Of course, no shit coins here, Bitcoin only, no distractions. We just give them the good stuff. All right. And we help them understand why it's the good stuff. So we're going to head over to Twitter spaces right now. I'll sign off playing this beautiful little ad one last time and see you guys over on Twitter spaces at Swan Bitcoin is hosting the space. This holiday season, give the gift of Bitcoin to your loved ones. Swan delivers your Bitcoin gift along with our world-class education and client service. Create a Bitcoin gift and wrap it with a custom message for your family and friends. Dash away with your gift. Your recipient will receive an email right away that easy. Give the gift of generational wealth. Give Bitcoin. Thanks everyone for hanging out and listening to Preston Andy for Bitcoin Quarterly Report. Quite a year, quite a quarter. Uh, and what's really cool is we get to use Twitter Spaces now to let you guys ask some questions. So uh, raise your hand. Go ahead and we have six requests already. That's great. Uh, so bring people up like, you know, one, two, three at a time and try to keep the stage relatively clear. And um, let's start with Clay. All right, Clay, you're up. Hey, guys, how's it going? I had a question that's been on my mind, and I think I want to direct this one towards Preston. I hear him talk about how the halving causes a supply, a supply shock to the market. And when you look at the chart, that seems pretty obvious based on what's hap happened historically. And... When I listen to someone like Michael Saylor and what he says about the having, he'll say that the daily volume on what's mined is something like 1% of the volume. So it seems pretty immaterial. So when a supply, when that supply shock happens or the having, um, I'm curious how that causes <coughs> such a, a drastic change in the price. So curious Curious to your thoughts on that and if that question made any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And um, I think I think we should be skeptical of it, like what you're saying. Um, I know Willie Wu um, has put out some great material on why he thinks that it's not as profound as it used to be. And uh, to be honest with you, if I was going to side between kind of uh, plan B's model, which makes it look very systematic, and what Willie's kind of been putting out more recently, I think I might actually side more with Willie that maybe it's it, it might not be as uh, as instrumental or profound as, as maybe we were attributing it to be. Um, if I was going to argue for why maybe it is, I would say that when you're dealing with an exponential system, and I think this that most of this functions like an exponential system. Um, the the amount of change that happened early on can maybe somewhat have still a proportional impact um, later on 
uh, with even a smaller move or a, a smaller change. So that's something that, um, you know, somebody with a, with a mathematics degree that specializes in mathematics uh, can maybe talk to at, at a much higher level than I could. Um, but I'm very open to it, to it being uh, not as impactful, to be quite honest with you, Clay. Thanks. Yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna generally agree. Um, you have to think that over time, and this is what history tells us. I mean, you look at the price pumps post having they've been smaller percentage wise each time, so it would make sense that uh, that would decrease further in the future as the number of coins or, or the decrease in the supply schedule on a percentage basis just falls materially each time. So I'm in the same camp. And I have a question for you, Clay, which is when are you going to release our uh, episode that, that we recorded recently? <laughs> yeah, we've had quite a backlog. Yours is coming out, um, the, not this coming Tuesday, but the one after. And I'm going to be listening to that, to that one and editing it, editing it here soon, getting that finalized. So I'm really excited to listen through again. Cool, man. Thanks for the question. All right. Thanks, Clay. Uh, Sovereign Stoic, thanks for joining us. Please ask your question. Hey, Preston. Just uh, considering the inflection point in terms of institutional mining and now um, uh, nation-state mining like El Salvador and now the Bitcoin bond and kind of the educational transition towards Bitcoin as a proof-of-work system supporting um, uh you know, energy as a base source of, of human civilization and now Bitcoin as a method of, of that, of transporting that digital energy through space and time. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of nation states now competing for hash rate and controlling the Bitcoin mining network in similar regards to um, the petrodollar states uh, securing their self-sovereignty by producing uh, oil in the past and how that shapes up in the future and then how that affects current uh, miners um, and even like the little miners who are trying now to compete against nation states. You know, I think in general, it's, it's taking, it's just going to take more time. I think it's going to take maybe another cycle, um, you know, another two to four years. And I think the thing that's going to, and we talked a little bit about it on the show earlier where, um, once El Salvador's bonds start demonstrating how valuable they are and how smart of a decision that was, um, you're going to see a lot more uh, nation states, especially smaller ones, that are going to dip their toe in the water and try to do something similar. Um, until there's some type of uh, example that has been successful, I think you're going to have a lot of... Uh, timid <laughs> uh, entities, sovereign entities that are a little hesitant to go make such a bold call and bold decision because, um, you know, doing, doing those types of actions in some of these, in some of these states that we're talking about could end in, in total disaster uh, for those, those people. So I think it's going to just take more time. And I think that, thank God we have a country that has done it in such a, in such a demonstrative way as an example for everybody to kind of follow suit if, if it works out the way we all kind of expect it to work out. 
And so do you see a vision of the future where um, small miners and small corporations are just consolidated into massive um, mining corporations and nation state mining is similar to what the way the oil industry developed in the late 1800s and early 1900s? Uh, I think that people who don't have a deep appreciation for how nation states could take a strategic position and interest in what you're describing, I think they're they're totally underestimating how nation states might respond. So yes, I I do think that that has a lot higher probability than maybe some others might think. Now whether that's good um, for the network itself. Um, I would be very concerned if you had a, a powerhouse country kind of step in and start uh, driving a lot of that. But hopefully with more time and more distribution of the hardware throughout the various geographic regions, um, it might not be anything to really be too concerned about if it's distributed somewhat equally around the world. Um, but that's going to be, I, I think that's going to be a challenge. And I think that the moving a lot of the production for the ASICs and things like that into the United States is obviously uh, very good strategically for the United States. Um, but from the overall network, um, I think it would be beneficial to see a whole lot more manufacturing kind kind of happening all around the all around the world. So um, not anything we can necessarily control at the individual level, but. Um, it's it's definitely worth something kind of watching as it evolves and matures uh, to see whether that would potentially pose a threat to to the centralization of the network. Yeah, thanks for that. And I mean, obviously, um, the good thing about Bitcoin mining is that the the miners don't necessarily make the rules right. They're still subject to the consensus of the de the decentralized nodes. So we like it about that. We like that about it. Right. The fact that we're petrified about anything like that, I think, speaks to the, the culture of the community, which is very strong. Yeah, and just to, you know, not to beat a dead horse here, but all the more reason to make America safe for Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's good news, bad news that all this hash rate has moved to the U.S. I, like Preston, am not keen to see, you know, 50 percent. I'm not keen to see a supermajority of hash rate in the U.S., just like we had a supermajority of hash rate in China. I guess I'd rather see it here than in China, but I'd also rather not see it at all. And uh, so, yes, fortunately in this country, we have competition among states, competition among jurisdictions, and we have strong property rights. But, um, yeah, it, uh, it, it means we got to make sure that uh, America's safe for Bitcoin for long enough for hash rate to distribute more globally over time. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming back up. So I've been stoic and great question. Uh, Matt, you're, you're up. Hey, thanks everyone. Thanks Preston for taking the time. So Preston, you must know the CoinDesk most influential 2021 top 50 has been announced. Unfortunately, you got snubbed one more year, but Mark Cuban made the top 50. Um, but uh, on a serious note, for 2022, what new content media can we look forward to you from the podcast or otherwise? Yeah, uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, you know, 
Mark's had a lot of Dogecoin contributions, so you know you got to you got to take care of him. Um, no, I, I, I'm just gonna kind of stick to the basics, man. I, you know, I just want to have interesting conversations with people that I think are really kind of making things happen in the space, and um, you know, I, I, I also think that there's a point where you can create too much content around something, and that you're really not. Uh, having those interesting conversations. So I, I like to try to just have maybe one conversation per week on the topic and just really try to focus in on, on the signal as much as possible. So, um, you know, I'm not, I don't look to change too much <laughs> up here in the coming year um, other than just trying to cover the, the important stuff for folks and really trying to, to focus in on, on, the, on the big chunks and the stuff that's important. That's great. Yep, Congratulations to Mark, by the way. <laughs> Get the vote out, everyone. Do your part this year. Oh, man. Poor Preston. Just, uh, I mean, at this up. point, I don't know that I ever want to be on the list if, if they're putting Mark Cuban <laughs> on it. Maybe it's a compliment that I'm not on the list. <laughs> That was uh, that was one of the best spaces of the year, uh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get one from Jayborn BTC. Who? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. Apparently, you re recently wrote uh, an article or, or like your findings after one thousand hours down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which is awesome. I just saw your pinned tweet. Yeah, thank Congrats. you, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, hi, Preston. Uh, awesome thread you put out two days ago. Uh, my question is. Do you think governments will or even can try to suppress Bitcoin price uh, with futures and off-balance sheet funds? I know Greg Foss and Lawrence Leppard discussed the possibility on a recent Swan Bitcoin podcast and mentioned that they did so for gold prices for years that way and was curious to hear uh, how you see that as a possibility for Bitcoin and how much of an impact that could have actually in the short term and in the long term. Thank you. You know, I'm, uh, I don't like to say whether it, that whether they can or they can't. I would just say that I think the probability of them doing it is, is way more difficult uh, than compared to gold. I would just kind of phrase it that way. And as most know, when you're talking about, you know, spot derivatives and things like that, um, most of it comes down to the fact that you can take immediate settlement for Bitcoin right now without much... Um, friction whatsoever and without any storage cost and uh with very minimal fees um and so that, that, that's the thing that really kind of separates it apart so like when you look at gold and you're trying to settle spot and like that's a big deal to move it across space and time um and it doesn't happen instantly um and people prefer to just receive the paper because it's more convenient and faster um because of just those technical factors that's what kind of opens up the manipulation for for the the gold market the other thing that i would tell you is when you look at how many exchanges there are that are offering spot and you look at the intelligence of the people that are trading and, and wanting to own spot i'm sorry you're not going to give me a piece of paper over spot uh ever <laughs> right. And I think that the people that you have dealing in Bitcoin are extremely smart individuals that 
think in a very similar manner because they know how easy it is to take the underlying, uh, to take the physical. So I see it as a concern. I see it as something that people need to watch. And I think the thing for me that I would be watching is just the sheer size of like the CME cash settled derivative space relative to the, to the size of the spot market. And if it started to look like one was starting to dominate the other, well, then, yeah, maybe maybe we start to really kind of have more conversations about that. But um, I don't see that today. I don't see that ratio really kind of trending in a direction that's becoming worrisome. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's something that we need to be wary of, but not anything that I'm concerned about. I'm curious what Andy thinks. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, Preston. The relative size matters. Here's another question, too, is uh, if there's a little bit of price suppression, is that a bad thing? Uh, if we get longer to stack sats, uh, is that a negative? If we get longer for the on-ramps and the wallets, you know, and the systems of safe credit, you know, and the exchanges and the sat stacking services to keep building out, uh, is that is that a bad thing? I mean, if you really got to extremes, yes, and it was you know beating the price down, you know, such that you're not seeing uh, relatively consistent gains over multiple years, then we'd be concerned. But uh, I guess I'm not. I'd almost welcome. Uh, I'd almost welcome a little bit of pressure if it if it means uh, a reduced chance of just a complete blowout. You know, mayhem, hyper Bitcoinization in the next few years. This may be an unpopular opinion. I don't want to see hyper-Bitcoinization happen too soon. I want it to happen uh, more smoothly than it otherwise might. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks for the question. El Sultan Bitcoin, my friend. Hey, you. Hey, what's up, Brady? Um, Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, so I guess that my question to Preston and Andy is around the um, the announcement that Ledin from Canada made yesterday of the first uh, the world's first Bitcoin backed mortgages, right? So, I uh, just want to get your two cents on that kind of product. And b- before you answer my question, I just want to clarify that this is a kind of product that will be able not only to give a mortgage for Bitcoiners to use this Bitcoin as collateral to buy chairs, real estate, right? This is also going to work vice versa. So you'll be able to use your house as collateral to buy Bitcoin. Thank you. Andy? Yeah, so sorry to disappoint uh, El Sultan Bitcoin, but I just, I haven't reviewed the, you know, reviewed the details. So I, uh, I'm not sure I have a response uh, just yet. <laughs> so here's what's funny. I haven't reviewed it either, but I was looking to reach out to these guys to record a show next week. I have not read through any of it yet. Um, <laughs> hey, we're, gonna, we're, we're, uh, we're working on a show with those guys too. And it's, it actually looked pretty cool, I got to say. Um, uh, so it's very make interesting. Us, and I, make us smart, Brady. Yeah. Oh, well – What's really fascinating is I think it's got the potential to be one of those things that it's, it's on the same level as the Bitcoin bot. I just think it's a really innovative financial tool to basically make Bitcoin more useful for people who are trying to hodl it at the same time, right? So it's like leveraging Bitcoin while hodling it 
um, with you know relatively low risk, and it's pretty cool. Uh, I will I would definitely consider using it uh, if you know if I were in the market for a mortgage. So um, I'm definitely like down to learn more. I haven't studied it closely, but I, I am excited about it. What What are the yields, Brady? I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe. Well, El Sultan works for Ledin, so let's let's see if uh, we can get some details. Yeah, so the legal team doesn't allow me to disclose too much, right? But right now, the yields are starting at 7.9%. And we do expect those yields to continue dropping as we see more demand coming in for this kind of products. Just like we've seen with our Bitcoin-backed loans, they started at 18% APY. They're now at 9.5% APY. So, yeah. So I can just tell you, I think that uh, based on that, um, I think the interest uh, for borrowing against the equity of the house is probably going to be the, the play and probably the more um, the more popular um, way to leverage that. Um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody wants to leverage the nothing percent interest rate that you can borrow against without putting up any collateral other, other than them holding a note against the, the actual property. So, um, yeah, it, that, that seems like a, a really interesting, uh, almost like a reverse mortgage kind of deal where you're able to stack sats with, with what you've got. Um, I could see that becoming a very popular product. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, good stuff, man. Thanks for coming up. All right, Chris is connecting. All right, Chris, you are connected to the stage. What's up? Hey everybody! Oh, Thanks God. for you can't, let, you can't let this guy talk. You can't let this guy talk. <laughs> oh no! Uh, my question is, um, you know, it's like it seems like with Bitcoin, there's like two schools of thought. You have one side that's basically, you know, Bitcoin is a store of value, long-term wealth, it's savings, hard money, and then you have another side of Bitcoiners who love it and they want to use it for everything with the lightning rails and you know, buy stuff with it. I mean, I know a friend who got me into it. It's pretty, he got into it a long time ago. He uses it all the time to buy all kinds of stuff. It's almost like he has a little Bitcoin family where they just keep using it among themselves. And my question is like, is there a particular school of thought that Bitcoiners, is it one way or the other, or is it just a personal, it's your own personal um, decision on which way you go? Or as a Bitcoiner, should there be one way you should be looking at it? You know, store value, save it, don't ever spend it, or spend as much as you can and use it because it has utility. Thank you. The first thing we got to clear up here, are you a professor in Annapolis? No, I'm not a professor in Annapolis. I went to the Naval Academy, and I'm a captain in the Navy. Oh, my. Because your, your picture there looks like you're at Annapolis. Yeah, I was at Annapolis. That is in Annapolis. Were were you at the game this past weekend? No, I did not go to the game. Oh. I watched it on TV, but I did not go to the game. Let me tell you, I was there and it was terrible. <laughs> hey, that was the most. I never screamed so loud in my life. 
we had a little uh, Army Navy party here at the house, and it was just, it was absolutely sick. I'm assuming you were not rooting for the midshipmen. It was, it was a terrible, it was a terrible day, sir. It was a terrible day. And thank oh, you. Oh, man. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we got to sing last, so that's all I care about. You sure did. You sure did. Uh, but no, thank you for your service, sir. Um, this is how I would answer this. So, um, as an investor, the, and when I look at the prospects of what I think this thing's going to mature to, um, the last thing I want to do is sell it or use it for anything, right? Like I just want to stick it in a hardware wallet, have it off the, off the net and locked away and just let it do its thing and, 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 and gain in value over time. Um, when, when we talk about the lightning network and like why I, you know, have a full node, why I have open channels and why, um, you know, tipping people on Twitter or doing whatever, that's more just building out the infrastructure for what would come next and what many would describe as a phase, uh, transition, almost like, uh, water turning to ice or water turning to gas, which would be a higher energy state. So, uh, that would probably be more analogous to what we're describing. So when uh, you look at um, what's happening in El Salvador and the fact that they have these rails that are immediately settling and people are going and buying things at McDonald's with their sats, I think they're doing it more for demonstrative purposes. And uh, I think the bigger story down there for the utility is what Jack Maulers is doing as far as using it to uh, you know, now be able to send over the Bitcoin rails that have immediate settlement and then doing atomic swaps into stable coins to the, the people that are receiving those funds down in El Salvador. I think that's the bigger picture of the utility right now. So if we're going back to like the phase transition from water to a gas, that might be the first step of utilizing the rails for uh, clearance from stable coin to Bitcoin to stable coin across border you get immediate settlement and you're you're exercising the network in that capacity and you're doing it in a way where you're not trying to be long uh stable coins you're using bitcoin more for its for its immediate rails without some type of intermediary in, in between i think as this thing progresses um and people aren't going to want to hold stable coins because you're going to get to a point at, at a certain point in time and we're definitely not there right now um but as time progresses, you're going to get to a point where um, the only thing people are going to want to hold is Bitcoin because the buying power of anything else is going down so quickly. So an example of that environment today would be over in Turkey. Um, the last thing you want to be holding is the local currency because it's just totally melting down in real time, uh, similar to other you know, events we've seen in, in history. Okay, I'm a, no, use, that, yeah, I'm a that, use made guy, by the way. Oh, okay. So, no, thanks for the answer. That makes a lot of sense. So, I guess for me, I, I guess I get confused with the word when we talk about hyper Bitcoinization. When that happens, when I hear that, I'm thinking it's something where, like, at some point in time, everybody's using Bitcoin for everything. It's just like that's the money. Is that the wrong way to think about it? Hyper maybe doesn't mean that it just means that Bitcoin is kind of like the standard that everyone 
uses as a, a store of wealth, but we're still using dollars for everything. And that's my last question. I'll hang on. Thank yeah, you. that's it. That's exactly right. So when we say hyper Bitcoinization, what we're saying is that at that point, it's a global settlement layer. It's the preferred uh, money of choice. And in this scenario, what's really unique about Bitcoin is it can it can uh, it, the saleability of it is like a currency, but yet it's still money. And that's something gold has never been able to do is it's never had it could never be saleable like fiat um but it was hard it was hard money and so bitcoin is both of those things it's just that when you look at your bills and they're denominated in dollars like when you pay your electric bill or you pay your water bill or you pay whatever you have to make sure that whatever income you're receiving from the, from the navy right that that's set aside in order to make those payments in those fixed dollar terms and then whatever disposable income you have on top of that is what you can put into whatever investment that you suspect is going to give you some type of profit, either through the market appreciation of the, of the asset itself or through free cash flows that the asset will kick off. Um, and so you're, you're making that calculation every week personally. Um, and so are our businesses and other entities that are, that are, you know, doing that, that math. When it starts to change is when the, when the power company is starting to say, you know what, uh, we're so heavily involved in mining at this point, uh, we would actually prefer to just receive our payments in Bitcoin because it's going up so fast relative to these other things that we're making our, our other bills in that might not be denominated in Bitcoin. And with services like Strike, like it's automatically doing those conversions, those atomic swaps immediately. And that's what's so fascinating is from a technological standpoint, all of that's plumbed for however the recipient or the, the person making the payment wants to handle their own affairs, uh, they can make those decisions today. It, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't need my employer to pay me in Bitcoin. I just don't. They can pay me in dollars all day long. As soon as I get it, I'm going to swap it into whatever I whatever I want it to be. I would just add, I agree with all that. And I would just add, you know, Chris, um, both narratives are great. Like, it's multiple ways to win. I mean, you know, Bitcoin, as Sailor says, you know, just being pristine digital property, and something that you borrow against in fiat terms and never sell—that's great. I mean, that's how I use. Um, that's how I use Bitcoin. I'm a worse Bitcoin citizen uh, than than Preston. Like, I don't. I have no involvement with Lightning, right? I just hodl. You know, when I buy stuff from Bitcoiners, they say, "Hey, can you pay me in Bitcoin?" And I say, "Sorry, that complicates my taxes. I'm going to pay you in dirty fiat." And that's just the way I use Bitcoin. And then at the other end of the spectrum. You got people living, as Preston said, in regimes where the local money is, uh, you know, is dying, basically. And they really need Bitcoin for transactions. And that's great, too. And for the long run, for investors who believe that Bitcoin could become transactional money, which I do believe eventually, no time soon, you know, on a mass scale, but eventually, um, then, you know, it's important that level two and level three whether it's lightning or other protocols or systems, it's important that those get they get built and that the kinks get worked out and they start to get adopted because for Bitcoin to reach its potential as true transactional money, eventually we'll need those layers. But in the meantime, um, you know, just being that pristine, unseizable, uh, decentralized, limited supply, uh, pristine digital asset, 
that's great too. So it's kind of a lot of ways to win uh, in my book. And uh, yeah, hyper-Bitcoinization, yes, is when we get to true unit of account status where, where the majority of the world is, is thinking in terms of sats. Some of us are already thinking that way and uh, eventually uh, others will. Could take a long time and uh, that's okay. Chris, thank you for the question, man. Thank you for your service. Do you have any, uh, any follow-ups? No, that was fantastic. I appreciate the time and uh, enjoy all the good conversation. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, better luck next time, Dustin. Um, <laughs> if, <laughs> um, real quick, follow these guys. Uh, if you're not following Preston or Andy, do that. Andy is really, really underfollowed. Uh, Preston's doing all right on that front. Um, sorry, he lost his game, but he's got a lot of followers, so that's good. Um, Andy needs, uh, deserves your follow. So, uh, he's a really very smart dude on, uh, finance and Bitcoin and, uh, also a very clever tweeter. So you should, uh, you should follow Andy. All right. We've got Nikolai up next. Nikolai, let's hear your question. Oh, um, hi everyone. And, uh, I want to thank Preston and Andy. Um, you guys have really done a lot to orange pill me. Uh, and give me a lot of confidence with this uh, asset class. Just the quality of thought and the in-depth and the quality of people that come on the podcast. It's just amazing. So very grateful and uh, kind of like a kid in a candy store with a chance to ask a question. I could ask a lot of questions. Um, but when I look at the world, uh, the investing landscape, equities are insane. Um, bonds are a joke. Um, and we're sort of poised between this world of hyperinflation or inflation, asset bubble, and then what probably really needs to happen is that deflationary wave that, that cleans it all up and that crash. So the only thing that I can come up with is Bitcoin and cash, um, because if you own enough Bitcoin, you certainly have upside. And if we um, if we deflate, if we have a another you know March 2020 event, you want to have some dry powder. Um, so I, I I wonder um, if you guys think I'm missing anything, and, and if you have any comment on that. I don't think you're missing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And and having the dry powder can come in two forms. It can be outright. It can be outright, you know, dollars in the bank. It can also be available credit, right? You know, if you've got a house and um, and you've got a home equity line, I mean, some are more aggressive and they say, yeah, that is effectively term debt. So if I can max out the leverage on my house, that's actually probably the safest way, you know, legitimately safe way to, to use leverage to buy Bitcoin. Um you know, I personally will admit I have <laughs> taken out leverage on my house in the past to buy Bitcoin. At this point, you know, I have a home equity line, which is available liquidity for me, such that, yeah, if and when I need cash dollars either to buy the dip or for any other purpose, um, you know, I'm ready to to draw on that. But yeah, dollars, dollars available, uh, both outright, you know, balance as well as uh, available borrowing are a good idea. In, you know, and the, and the thing I would say too, this is a personal journey because I've been a hundred percent in Bitcoin, and 
<laughs> so I will tell you, I've had some nights where I wasn't sleeping. And, and so I, I've had to adjust back my, my position, never, never taking it down very low. It's still a massive percentage of my net worth. But I've, I've what's the word? I've sort of uh, dialed uh, my exposure to something that I can, I can, where I can handle the vol. Yeah, that's right, Nikolai. I've had the same experience. Uh, Bitcoin invites you to find your max pain threshold and just <laughs> decide how much you know psychological uh, pain you want to endure uh, with the volatility. Um, the good news is, with time, uh, you know it gets less painful. And so, yeah, probably the optimal strategy for people is find that pain point. Uh, it's probably at a relatively low level of pain as you start to get comfortable and get up the curve and live through the volatility. And uh, my experience personally is that my pain threshold for volatility has increased with time in Bitcoin. Preston's even been in significantly longer than I have. So he's got uh, he's got the alligator blood. He's got ice in his veins by this point. But uh, yeah. Well, I can see that. Like the first time, you know, when we had the China dip, you know, I was beside myself. And this last dip doesn't even phase me. The, the one thing that I would tell people that are looking at this, because um, what you guys are really talking about is position size and you're dealing with something that has so much volatility and I don't care who you are, just psychologically, when you see a number, you know, if Bitcoin goes to 65,000, all of a sudden you think that 65,000 should be locked in for you forever, right? It's just how we're wired to think like that. The thing I would tell people if they you got to you got to really kind of zoom out and say, what is it that what do, what do I really need for the lifestyle that I live? And like, what's that number? Right. Is that number five million dollars? Is that number 50 million dollars? I don't people have to answer that for themselves. Right. Um, and when they answer that for themselves, what it'll force them to do is say, well, why is it $5 million? What is it that I need to own? Um, and what is it that I want to do that requires that, you know, value, that, that net worth in my life? And when you answer, when you start asking those questions and, and realistically answering them, um, what I think you're going to find out is to achieve that net worth, if what we think is going to happen with Bitcoin happens, you really don't need that much Bitcoin in order to hit some of these numbers. Um, you know, like Michael Saylor says he thinks it's got 100x, maybe 200x from where we're at right now. I agree with that in, in terms of buying power. So if we're in, I'm just going to use round numbers, if we're at 50,000 today and we go 100x, that's 5 million for just having one Bitcoin, right? So I think people just have to be realistic with themselves as to like, how much, how much do I really need in my life? Um, and do I really need it? You might want to ask why five times on that question as to whether you really do need that much money or, or is it going to poison your, your family line? Um, and uh, when, when you do that, it's going to be a whole lot easier to maybe de-scope your portfolio to a point where you're not losing sleep at night because that's not healthy. Uh, in any kind of sense. And I think the longer that you're in the space, like Andy said, you know, I've, I've been at this almost seven years now. Um, the longer you're in the space, I think you're just naturally going to get 
way more comfortable with owning it and with a larger portion of your portfolio being in it. And you're probably going to have a, a fairly substantial windfall of buying power if you're in it for, a, you know, five to seven years. So um, just some things for people to think about. And, and my, my whole point of saying this is you don't need a whole lot to, for it to go a really long way. And I think people's mental and physical health um, is very important as you're going through this. If you're not sleeping at night, you, you probably need to take a, a relook at things. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for that answer. And uh, I feel like I'm getting there. So thanks again for, to both you guys. Thanks, man. Uh, really awesome to hear about your journey. And you're definitely getting there. You're definitely going to make it. So I'm happy for you. Uh, thanks for coming up and asking questions. Uh, Nicholas, you are up next, sir. No, I, I I just went. Someone else. Oh, it's I'm sorry. It's uh, yeah, there's Nikolai and Nicholas. So uh, we're, we're, my, my sorry. I'll tis the tis the season. Uh, guys, um, this space for a long time. A little more pessimistic and. Um, Uh, Nicholas, you're cutting in and out, mostly out. Maybe connection issues. Still there? Okay. Unfortunately, we lost you. I'm going to mute you, um, and I'll come back to you in a bit and see if things are working better. In the meantime, oh, yes, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say, Brecky or Sam must have cut him off because he was about to, he was saying something pessimistic, so he got booted. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. No, I'm, I'm just Nicholas? kidding. Wait, okay. I don't know. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Let's do it. There we go. Anyway, yeah. Get, and um, let me just point out some, some things I've seen over the years that are interesting, and maybe you guys can help me synthesize these ideas or poke holes into any theories I have. Um, well, what I am pessimistic about is that do you think in the future people are actually going to run their full node and and verify their 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 UTXOs? Like the more the more I speak with people, it just seems like there's just so many people that are just wanting to trade on Robinhood and maybe you know and and it's all about the gains and fiat and it's it's not so much about verifying UTXOs with their full node and having you know truly sound money. Um, so let's just. Uh, I'm getting more pessimistic with that. Just I, I don't, I, I see, it, I see it as an education problem. And again, Swan, you guys have done great work um, with this problem. Yeah, I, I hear uh, you. That's good. I, if you have more questions, definitely welcome to ask them. This is a really good one. I see Preston is ready, uh, ready to respond. So I'll hand it over. So when I think about this, I think the most important thing people need to understand is it's all about you having the ability to run your own full node and uh, open channels and to validate every single SAT that passes through that node. When people don't have that optionality to do that, that's when there's a major problem. Um, Do I see a significant portion of people as this thing continues to mature, not run their own full node? Absolutely. 
I think most will not do that. I think most don't even begin to have the technical chops to, to, I wouldn't even recommend most people to do that because they might make a mistake and mess something up and lose their buying power. Um, but, uh, when, when you compare it to the system today, what is the, what is the full node of the fiat system? The full node is the central bank. That's it. Uh, Dina Moose has an incredible book right now called the fiat standard where he gets into how the existing system works and your, your optionality of whether you can choose to hold money. You're, the only way you can, you could run a full node today that ensured that you had buying power is if you took it in cash. That's the only way that you could ensure that you actually have buying power today. That's it. Um, and good luck taking out, you know, significant sums from a bank without getting flagged. Um, so I'm not too concerned about that particular issue because, um, as far as I'm concerned, anybody and everybody can set up their own full node. They can onion wrap it. Your internet service provider wouldn't even have a clue as to what's coming through that thing. Um, and I think that it's, it's not much of a concern as long as people have the optionality in order to run it. I, I agree. I agree with you. Um, but it, like going, we, we, we're assuming that more and more people that use Bitcoin are not going to run their, not verify their own transaction set. But um, how much does that give leeway for, for big and powerful institutions to, to manipulate price? Um, like if you look at like the 2017 top, it's like it's exactly correlated with the futures opening. And now you're seeing with, with the spot ETFs not being allowed to, to open um, do you see like there's there's these powerful forces throwing their economic weight in order to control the price, and also like you you look at El Salvador now like that's it's it's an already dollarized country, and um, do you is this kind of like a test bed for a digital currency, um, where the price can be maintained within a range easily because just because it's it's size. And it's easily fractionally reserved because there's not that many people validating their own their own you know units. Um, do you that, that's that, that's the only concern I have is that is like uh, I, I again I'm a Bitcoin bull, but these are the things that that, that are just like it just seems all too perfect, you know. The the derivative space to me is a time preference that. Uh, is is not one that like myself, right? My time preference is I buy Bitcoin, I sock it away, and it never comes back onto the market ever again. Like it's just gone. Um, there's other people out there like me. Um, and as long as there's people like me and others that that view it that way, where we're just socking it away forever, um, we're going to erode what's happening. With all, with all the financialization, the Wall Street financialization of short-term interest um, in order to, to turn a quick yield at the expense of long-term decision-making and uh, you know, economic calculation as to what the value of this protocol and this network is. And so when you look at how fast that happened in previous cycles, you were dealing with a very small amount of people relative to the size of this, this marketplace today. 
And so I think people should expect that when you're transitioning from a system where the time preference is spend it as fast as you can and just buy whatever the hell you can so that we can you know, have some semblance of happiness because we're indentured slave servants collectively as a human race in, in, in the world today, um, you should expect that the way that they act in financial markets, especially in Bitcoin and digital asset markets, is very similar to that line of thinking, which is insanely speculative and not thinking for the long term. And so the, the reason that this is taking longer to kind of rise to this value than maybe the previous cycle, if I was going to pin it on anything, I would just pin it on that. I mean, just look at all these other coins and things that people are buying and it's just total nonsense. I mean, just noise, right? But there are people out there that don't see it that way, and they're looking at, at this thing, and they understand the broader context, and they understand that this is all about debt markets blowing up and the misallocation of capital due to the manipulation of markets. Um, I just don't see – if there's one thing I've learned in Bitcoin is that the more that people try to manipulate it, the stronger it actually gets. And it truly, for me, at least – and maybe I'm very biased relative to the way that you're seeing it. But I'm just seeing it as the ultimate anti-fragile system that I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I would agree. It's it's definitely up there in any options that we have that are that are have any sort of you know elements of anti-fragility. So I, again, I'm with you. I'm just I'm just trying to to talk about some some concerns I've I've seen over the years. So I appreciate you guys uh, uh, talking, and I don't want to hog up any more time. So. I love those questions. Hey, Nicholas, Great this, this Can is I just interject a... one one point real quick, Nicholas, too, which is, you know, today. So, like, you know, like Preston, I got a node on my like semi crappy, you know, dedicated desktop computer that I bought for that purpose, and you know, storing the whole blockchain takes whatever half terabit of storage, which is kind of a lot, but you know, Moore's law and computing are amazing things. I mean, if you look at the amount of hard drive space or storage space you've already got on your mobile phone, you know, we're probably five years from being able to comfortably run a node on a mobile device. And that doesn't mean that everyone's going to do it, but it does make it that much easier. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the brilliant design of Bitcoin. It's part of the reason why the community has rallied so hard around uh, not expanding the block size is because you don't want that data set you want that. You want to make it easier and easier over time for that data set to be stored in more places and run nodes on, uh, you know, cheaper and cheaper devices and and higher volumes of devices. And things are going in uh, in the right direction with time in that regard. Hey, this is Brecky over the Swan account. I just wanted to add one thing about sort of the pessimism towards uh, towards running a full node. You know, I, I feel like with every cycle, more and more people are brought in, but. The process of going from, you know, I bought my first bit of Bitcoin or and or shit coins to becoming a Bitcoiner to running a full node, you know, it, it takes time. And so right now we're seeing this, you know, massive crop of people that are that are coming into the, the crypto space and the Bitcoin space. And, you know, some of them, it'll just take them time to one to understand what Bitcoin is and to get to the point where they, they see the value of running a full node. You know, I got into Bitcoin a while ago, but it took me, you know, a number of years to start running a node and to start utilizing it in the way that, you know, I, I hope most people do. So, you know, I think it's positive to see people coming into, uh, 
into Bitcoin and, you know, we we have to have a low time preference with them and, and step up our educational efforts, as you mentioned. But, you know, I, I, I'm not pessimistic about that. Yeah, I appreciate your, your opinion. And I, I agree. It takes, yeah, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to, to learn it and, 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 and yeah, again, hopefully, like you said, one day you can open your, your mobile phone out of the box and it has a full node. So uh, that's true. That's true as well. Even something like yeah. uh, the Lightning Network this year, like look what Umbral did. You know, uh, Plebnet is a is I think I forget the percentage point of the entire Lightning Network, but it's a sizable portion. Like because of tools like Umbral, there are more people running nodes um, and running Lightning nodes than ever. You know, and, and so I think we'll see even more progress in that direction as more and more user friendly tools come out. That's Absolutely. true. S- same goes for self-custody and multi-sig and all of that. It's still relatively early days, and, and Bitcoin's growing faster than the internet. You know, it's an exponential tech built on top of the internet itself. So it's, you know, it's it, it has the advantage of having all that infrastructure below it that the internet didn't have. You know, there's a lot of physical and physical infrastructure to build out. But um, you know, the cool thing is that um, this this requires a critical mass to achieve sufficient decentralization. So not everyone needs to run a node. Um, but there needs to be a critical mass to avoid, like basically to defend against, you know, nation state attacks and Bitcoin's like there now it's not, it hasn't been defeated. You know, there's a hundred thousand roughly nodes out there. There's, you know, 12,000 publicly available nodes and it's hard to estimate the rest, but like Luke Dasher has, who's a core dev has estimated there's around a hundred thousand or so. And that's that number is definitely going to keep growing with every wave of adoption and uh, especially as this continues to get easier and easier to use and as the real world makes like painfully apparent the you know need to take control of your money and meet the need to like you know help this network achieve its goals which is you know to provide a peer-to-peer money that's controlled by the people and not by a central authority and we're do, we've done that, and we're going to continue to do that through uh, education and, and better tools and design and UX and, and all of that. And it's happening, um, and I think that will just continue to accelerate. So if we can get you know, millions, tens of millions of people running nodes around the world, that's going to be sufficient to maintain decentralization. Um, so I'm not worried about it, and I think that we'll continue to do the same thing with self-custody and with, uh, with multi-sig and just you know, security in general. It's just going to get better and better. So um, the future is bright for Bitcoin. I think we've crossed the chasm. True. I, I, if there's a lot of speakers, I don't want. I, I, I'm also interested in nation state attacks. If, if if there's a lot of speakers, you can kick me out. But that's that's another thing. Is that um, you're saying that we're getting to the point where we're gonna, where we're going to see nation state attacks? And like something that's always interests me is like the executive order against the the Venezuelan Petro. I mean, I, again, I'm not I'm not an advocate for any shitcoin, but that is interesting that that happened, and it's it's not talked about a lot. Um, why why was that shitcoin executive ordered and not any others? Um, you know, it's it's just it, the the whole geopolitical aspect is again. I'm not behind any closed doors, but it is interesting, um, and to see what what kind of attacks will come in the future. They're, they're going to come. They're all going to come. Every single possible attack, you know, is going to come. And that's what, you know, Preston was talking about, the ultimate anti-fragile system. 
Um, it's just what we've seen, you know, and what we know about the way the network is, um, is built and and the the game theory and and everything we've seen approve itself over through history. And like, you can kind of project out what might happen in the future based on what we know now. And it's, um, it's just, it's an, it's an awesome thing to watch. Like it literally puts, it puts us in awe that it's possible that this thing actually exists and works. Um, and it, as it gets attacked, it'll continue to get stronger. You know, look at the, the China ban we talked about in the episode today. Um, you know, we're back at all-time high hash rates. That was a, that was a, what amounted to a nation-state attack against Bitcoin mining by one of the most powerful nations on the planet, probably the second most powerful nation on the planet. And it took five months for the network to realign itself and, and get back to the same security uh, level that it was at. So do you think do you think that, that do you think that was an actual attack or more of like indifference like we want to have our own CBDC we don't give a shit about Bitcoin well, that's an attack, no no we 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 want to get rid of capital control we want to have more capital control <laughs> people are using this they, let's ban they it see, yeah exactly that's an attack that's a nation state saying this is a threat we have this plan bitcoin is a threat to that plan so we're going to ban it that is a explicit nation state attack against bitcoin and it took five months to reestablish the same level of security. Yeah, it, 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 that, that is amazing that we're, we're, we at, we're at all time highs again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Without uh, without missing without missing a beat, you know, I think for people that were maybe participating in the market and routing payments, yeah, it might have you know got into a block a little bit slower. But for all intents and purposes, could you imagine if Google had to turn off half of their data centers on the snap of a finger? What would happen? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's a beautiful thing. It is beautiful. I appreciate you guys talking. Um, yeah, it's, again, yeah, a lot of these spaces end up being just like people talking bullish, bullish, bullish. But I, again, I'm a bull too, and it is a beautiful system, and I enjoy following it. But uh, fun, fun topics to talk about, in my opinion. Absolutely, man. Hey, look, Bitcoin wouldn't exist without adversarial thinking like this. Like, you, we should all be critical of it. We should all continue to think ab- about its shortcomings and uh, what we can do to address those. And what we can do, uh, you know, most of us, right, is to educate uh, and, and stress how important this thing is. And, and the, one of the best ways to educate is to ask those hard questions, not just be Pollyannish about Bitcoin's potential. You know? Right, right. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks, man. All right. Okay, so let's move over to Daniel now. Hey, guys. Um, thanks a million for all the work you do in the space. Love it. And the fact that it's free is unbelievable. So really appreciate it. Uh, my question relates to taxes and uh, more specifically tax policy being used as a weapon. Um one of the things that I think wasn't really discussed that much when the infrastructure bill went through was the idea of making everybody involved in the space being a broker, therefore being a reporting entity, therefore getting access to wallet addresses and linking them to actual individuals, um, and, and therefore giving the IRS the ability to um, target individuals and tax very heavily. Um, so if it was something that we wanted to shut down or they wanted to shut down, um, 
wouldn't tax be one of the methods that they could potentially do it to disincentivize people from getting into the space? Um, and just throwing it out there as something that would be just a crazy idea of them saying, well, we're going to tax Bitcoin at 95% and tough shit. So uh, two parts here. Uh, the first part is the, the issue you raise about, um, you know, kind of clamping down, I think is much more of a regional concern than a overarching Bitcoin network concern. Um, would, would price, you know, would the price of the tokens take a hit in the short term if a big country like the United States went, went hard at it? Absolutely. I think it would long term, what you're doing is you're incentivizing other nation states to adopt policies that would be, uh, the opposite of that in, in order to attract people with high net worth and people who have, uh, Bitcoin into their into their jurisdiction. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, as far as the system being anti-fragile, it's very anti-fragile, but with a long enough time frame that you're looking at it. Um, the second part there with the tax, you know, they could tax it through the nose. This also demonstrates the anti-fragility because here I am with, with Bitcoin. And if you raise the tax burden, what you're going to do is you're going to cut back on all the speculators. You're going to have the, the price, I would suspect, calm down, and you're going to incentivize people to actually hold it on a longer time frame than uh, short duration. Uh, and then and then you're looking, okay, so where can I move where I'm not taxed? Can I move to El Salvador where there it's treated as legal tender and there is no tax on Bitcoin? They've already got that law. Right. And so I, I suspect there's going to be many more like them that are going to follow suit to try to incentivize uh, Bitcoin into their jurisdiction. And so those actions, which are manipulative actions to try to control it and try to prevent it from spreading, in my opinion, only harden it and actually push it into regions that are going to promote it and do anything that they can in order to make sure that it's successful. So the game theory is is the part here that I think on a long enough time frame is going to stop nothing other than more of its adoption over time. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I agree with that. I guess one of my concerns is that hyper-Bitcoinization or uh, even regulation is going to come too soon. Um, I would prefer a situation where this was a slow build and it just kind of crept up on people. Um, instead, we're talking about, you know, institutions getting heavily involved. Uh, and one of the worries I have is just within, I think institutions getting involved is actually a bad thing because you're going to have, it's about uh, changing people's perception of what Bitcoin is. You're going to have the masses just buying it on, on their bank accounts, never taking custody, never spending it as a, an actual currency or coin. Um, and, and basically just just buying it through banks who are ultimately the ones that are going to hold all of this and, and charge fees through the nose to, to their underlying customers. Um, so personally, I prefer to see this be a slow build so that we don't get too much regulation too quickly at this point. Anyways, I think that's, that's pretty much all I had. The only other thing I was going to add was just uh, the point about the mining's uh, miners selling off 
uh, one of the things I've been kind of watching is just that a lot of miners actually aren't selling their coins at the moment and they're they're holding. So uh, that is taking away the sell pressure. And I guess uh, the idea that you can now they can now run their operations by through lending um, reduces that sell pressure for a miner who in the past maybe had to sell their coins. Just one additional thought. Yeah, I, I, thanks, I, th I think that's an interesting uh, point, and I think that's one of the things that Willie is also Willie Wu is bringing up as to uh, you know uh, just how much the the having really matters now when you're looking at the the added actions of that. So like that would actually you know enhance the the having event which you're describing there, but then there's other factors at the exchanges that Willie highlights that would maybe undo or, or make that less based on the fees and things like that, that they have to have to pay. So um, it, it's really hard to really kind of know what's, what's driving the scarcity uh, beyond what, you know, is just part of the protocol, but uh, he has some really amazing thoughts. I would highly encourage people to check out his feed uh, if they want to learn more. Perfect. That's it for me. Thanks a million, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it, man. Uh, Tecmo Super Bowl. <laughs> Tecmo Super Bowl, you're up. Hey, I spent way too much time playing Tecmo Super Bowl when I was a kid. All right, you just get Bo Jackson, and you run zigzag up and down the field, and you score every time. Oh, you know That's Bo Jackson is illegal. You can't use him. Illegal. It breaks the game. breaks the game. So... Thank you, guys. Uh, the main thing I really wanted to get across uh, was my my gratitude to both Swan and Preston. Um, when I first got in the space, uh, the very first book I read was Inventing Bitcoin uh, by Jan Pritzker, and uh, that just helped me tremendously. And then I've I've uh, devoured every single one of Preston's uh, Wednesday Bitcoin podcasts, and I'm I mod uh a lot i mean not, not like a large group like a five thousand plus group of uh personal finance crypto people and i'm always pimping preston's like latest uh podcast like oh you guys got to check this out you always get you guys got to check this out and we got another guy that's always saying like people come in and they're like look we just want an easy way to buy and hold bitcoin and and my buddy is always always pimping swan so the main thing i really wanted to get across was was thank you um i I feel a little uh, impish and embarrassed because all the previous questions were like super awesome and, you know, philosophical and, and not noobish. And my questions are kind of noobish. Um, but my first one was, uh, how do you, so intellectually, after, after listening to you guys, Booth, uh, Breedlove, all kinds of people, um, intellectually, I completely understand how there's Bitcoin. And then there's like everything else, and it's completely not even a, a comparison, especially with when term when when it comes to decentralization. Like you read uh, Tomer's problem with Ethereum article um, and things like that, and and you, and you quickly realize the question of like, hey, if a government came and said, you know, shut this down, if that if that that was a possibility, boom, it's not de decentralized. Um, so I I intellectually understand all that. How do you not fall into the trap as as a noob person like me of saying like, hey, I want to go invest in some S coin over here uh, because it's it might 10x because it has a smaller market cap um, and I could roll those those gains into more sats. 
is kind of my first noob question. Okay, I'll take that one. Um, it's probably unavoidable. <laughs> I went through my, you know, my alt coding phase. Uh, most people do. There do exist people who skip it completely. Uh, they're, you know, far smarter than me uh, or wiser. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's almost impossible to not, uh, it's almost too, uh, impossible to avoid the siren song of, you know, smaller, faster, cheaper, cooler, whizzier uh, altcoins for some period of time. So, you know, is that something that can be avoided? For most people, I think not. Uh, I think it takes time. You know, it takes an appreciation for why Bitcoin is still the biggest, baddest crypto asset out there. And, um, you know, and how decentralized it is and understanding the history of the, you know, the block size wars and how the community basically went through this painful process um, to keep the system as decentralized as possible, you know, now and forever. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think you just have to educate. You just have to get people to keep falling down the rabbit hole, keep asking the hard questions. And, um, and it just takes time. So basically you're saying I just have to be, go through the pain is what you're saying, essentially. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to give, I sorry, I Andy, it, but it's tough. I was going to give you a very similar answer to Andy's, which is just experience, right? Um, once you participate in markets long enough, the thing that I think anybody who's lived to survive will tell you that they learn is that they learn that they have a whole lot less understanding as to what's actually driving the price action. And um, so when I look at those types of markets, I think that they're highly influenced by VCs and marketing skills than uh, almost anything else. Um, additionally, the thing that you learn after you've played around in the markets long enough is, is you're looking for high probability hits. You're looking for things that you feel relatively comfortable with and that you feel like you really understand well. And then you're trying to find things that you understand well that have asymmetrical returns. And so when I'm looking at Bitcoin, I'm saying, all right, Preston, what, what do you think that that thing's going to yield? And then like, what do you think that it could peak out at? Well, you know, I said earlier, I think that it could have a hundred X from here. And the pace that I think it could get to 100x is about 100% annually. Um, so, and I and I think that when I look at the fundamentals and I look at the market cap size and I look at about everything that's being built around it, and then I look at the macro backdrop and everything else behind it, I'm saying this is a high probability hit that has one of the biggest asymmetrical upsides of anything I've ever seen in my life, and probably ever will see in my life. Um, you know, if you got if you got a million bucks and your expectation is that it's going to do 100 percent a year, you'll have one hundred twenty eight million dollars in seven years. Right. So why do I need to go and do something even more spectacular than that? And the answer is I don't, because my my lifestyle today, I'm very satisfied with my lifestyle and I live pretty simple. Um, so like. I don't need to do something spectacular. I don't need to go over there and outperform Bitcoin by 300% because I'm gamble I'm effectively gambling because I'm thinking that I'm that I know more than what I actually know. Right? And so in short, you you start to develop an appreciation for all the things that you don't know 
as to what it is that you actually do know. Thank you very much. That, that was very helpful. And I'm coming at it from a guy who is just like a big index fund because like investor, because I'm like, I don't know anything. Just just S&P 500. And then I got into the crypto world and I was looking for like, oh, I, I'm going to build the equivalent of an index fund in, in crypto. And I started looking at like market caps and everything. And then I ultimately was like the risk adjusted return doesn't seem worth it to do even like a top 10 index. and. I started getting a shorter and shorter amount of index until it became like, okay, now I'm down to like three or four coins. And I think eventually through, like you said, experience, that'll just eventually lead to just one coin index. Who would you rather have? Would you rather have an index of the top 10 running backs in Tecmo Super Bowl or would you rather have Bo Jackson? <laughs> that is a perfect, perfect right? analogy. <laughs> right. And like you'll you'll spend your time like trying to like figure out how to who who to draft in that top ten that ten running back index and you'll like troll all the Discord chats and the Telegrams and try to figure out what's gonna pump next and all that shit. It's just not worth your time. What's worth your time is buy Bitcoin on a regular basis, learn what's going on, educate others. That's all it is. My my new go to is gonna be buy buy Bo Jackson. Buy Bo Jackson. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't, have got a, is, you couldn't have got any smoother than that, Brady. Everything, <laughs> else, is, everything else is a shit back. Nailed it. All right. And then my, my one real quick uh, final thing is like, okay, so now, now we're all on the Bitcoin board. Um, I've been looking at various uh, cold storage options um, and looking, researching multi-sig. Um, I don't know if this is overkill, but I was looking at doing like something like a blue wallet, like a hot wallet secured maybe with like a YubiKey or something, then a ledger, and then maybe a paper wallet in sort of a multi-sig solution. Um, but I don't know if that's overkill and more than what most people need. Um, and thoughts on that? I typically do not uh, answer or get into the, the specifics of how people secure it, per just specifically because I don't know your technical skills, right? And, uh, so like, as an example, like if I was going to go to my grandmother or my mother and show her what to do, I would probably be more concerned that she would, uh, lose her keys or, you know, <laughs> do something not intelligent with the hardware than, um, than this keeping it on an exchange. And I know that that's very taboo for a lot of people in the space, but that's just kind of how I see it is like, um, me on the other hand, like I, I want something that's multi-sig. I want to, I, I want to have physical possession of it. Um, and I obviously want to perform these things for, for loved ones as well. I was using that earlier as an example, um, for, you know, when I'm talking to somebody that I, that I don't know, or that I can't perform those things for, um, I just, I'm real hesitant to do that. But if you, if you are technically sound and, uh, you're, you have a lot of confidence in your technical skills, I would highly encourage everybody to take physical possession of your coins, run your own full node so you can validate every single transaction that's sent to your, to your wallet address and, uh, make sure that you're securing the, the keys in a way that even if your house burnt down, you would still know how to reestablish those accounts awesome will do and and i, I have a cybersecurity background and that's what i'm working so i, I feel, <laughs> yeah i feel pretty pretty good there it's just 
a matter of uh, researching and finding the right options. And and also, I I do want to research running a, my own full node, not not almost less. I mean, yeah, you want to validate your own transactions, but it's almost more of an educational journey too. So, absolutely. I'm, I'm also loath to give specific advice. I don't mind saying, you know, check out cold card though. Um, you know, consider it consider it as part of your solution, whatever you settle on. Okay, as one of like a multi-sig option. Well, you know, multi-sig, single sig, uh, it has more features than many of the hardware wallets out there. And um, yeah, you know, I have no personal relationship with them or financial relationship, but check I out. happen to think it's a pretty good product. Check out uh, Spectre Wallet for the multi-sig software and then get a cold card for one of those wallets or one of the hardware wallets and then get another hardware wallet. So distribute the hardware wallets um, manufacturers uh, and distribute your signatures and then also distribute those wallet, those hardware wallets geographically. That's like the, be- like the basic, like the first step multi-sig. So you're geographically distributed and across also hardware manufacturers. And then I like I like Spectre as a software to manage the multi-sig wallet. Awesome. Thank you. So Spectre, cold card, and maybe like a, a ledger treasure or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Or a bit box. Cool. Thank you very much, guys. I'm not gonna take up any more time. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Uh, ben, you're up. Thanks for your patience. And wait, yeah, no quick, problem, ben, Luke. It's been awesome listening. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, um, Ben, real quick. Real yeah. Quick. Um, Anybody who's down there and wants to ask a question, please just request to come on stage. No question is like too noobish. Um, do not hesitate. That's how we all learn. There's 400 and some people in this space, and a lot of them are at your level or a different level or whatever, even completely brand new. So no question is like too noobish or whatever. Don't don't hesitate. Just request and come up and ask, and we're all going to learn something. Uh, okay, go ahead, Ben. So I do have a question. First, I wanted to throw a quick take out there regarding Tecmo's first question about what to do in just a whole world of people chasing the altcoin games. Basically, uh, not to get in the weeds, I am personally in like a community on Twitter, and you guys can see look at my profile picture where there are a ton of people getting sort of yanked in all these directions of different projects, promising they can do everything and they're going to be the best thing ever. They're going to flip Bitcoin, etc. The step that I've found most useful is just to help people into the mindset that Bitcoin by far has the strongest fundamentals and not even to try to tell people it's the only one you should touch. Uh, I just think that's personally been the most useful for me. It just... Getting, you know, one step at a time, just look at the fundamentals, learn the fundamentals, learn why it is the bedrock, and the rest are speculative in nature. That's just what's been the best for me. Um, And my question, regardless, was just circling back to something we were talking about earlier. You guys were mentioning nodes and how you visualize a future where soon everyone will have a node on their phone. I thought that was super interesting. I would love to learn kind of if you could speculate a bit on how you visualize that process of where we are today into the future where everyone, like the majority of people who are just buying and holding, can have that on their phone. And what sort of benefits will they get from that when they are eventually there? 
Yeah, great questions. Um, Preston and Andy both need to bow out. It is late. Um, so I'm going to give them a chance to take a quick stab at this one and say good night. And uh, we will keep this going uh, for a while longer. I've got another hour or so, and I'm happy to take questions. I know I'm not going to be running a note on my phone because I, you know, my battery's already getting fried every day uh, way too fast. Um, <laughs> um, but I think the, the point that was being made is that if a person would want to do something like that, that the, the potential would be there. And it goes back to the idea that it's not that we have to be doing these things. It's that we need the optionality to be able to do these things. Um, you know, like I can, I can already today right now, I mean, if I wanted to tip somebody on Twitter right now, like that's routing through my node back at my house, uh, through my smartphone. So I don't necessarily need to have that uh, happening right there on my smartphone. But if somebody wanted to work that out and the hardware is at that point, like in the future, yeah, we could be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, the question was, you know, why run it on a phone versus run it anywhere else? I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, uh, well, A is just to have, you know, more nodes transmitting uh transmitting transactions throughout the network and keeping it as robust as possible and you know as people come to appreciate bitcoin i think they do feel somewhat of a civic duty i know i do i mean preston makes the key point which is look like if you want to be certain if you want to validate that your transactions you know went through you know that you that you, you sent the money to the place you wanted to and that it actually happened uh, and vice versa, that you received money and you want to validate that with the chain. The only way to do that is with the node. And so for both those reasons, I think, um, you know, some people may want to run them on mobile. Some people won't and uh, to each his own and that's fine. The thing, that's, right. so cra the oh. thing that's so crazy for me today is that, I have sent friends, and I purposely do this, sent them a tenth of a penny. And it immediately clears, and it goes to a, to a wallet that is not self-hosted on their end because they have no clue what's even happening, right? Like, I just like, hey, download this blue wallet and send me the invoice for, you know, a tenth of a penny. And whenever I pay it, I am using my node, right? It's getting routed through my node. I'm asking for nobody's permission to send that tenth of a penny to a friend who did not KYC their wallet. They just downloaded it off the app store, right? And they received Bitcoin on the spot. They could run their own node. They could do the same thing that I'm doing. But for you know their lack of technical skill and lack of probably interest, they don't do it, but they could. And boy, oh boy, I mean, just look at just look at where we are today, and whether you want to send a, a a dollar. Like, good luck sending a penny at the bank to a friend, right? And being able to confirm and know that they actually received it without asking a platform owner. Pretty please, I beg you, show me that it got there, and then actually knowing whether it did or not. Like, they might be telling you that it is, but. Maybe it didn't. Maybe they're going to claw it back. Maybe the, the central bank of whatever nation state you're in is going to step in and literally claw all of the funds out of your bank tonight, right? 
You have no control over that. The bank doesn't have control over that. The central bank runs the node for everything and determines whether something's sent. And when you contrast and compare these two systems, and you know, when I'm routing this 10 sats, this tenth of a penny to a friend anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter where they're at in the world, I can route that. Um, when you think about that and the fact that it's onion wrapped, which is encrypted, and my internet service provider doesn't even know that I sent it, you're talking about something that is insanely powerful that um, I don't think most people can even remotely wrap their head around how powerful that is today. It's incredibly powerful. Um, and, the, and the fee on the tenth of a penny is nothing. <laughs> For yeah. all intents and purposes. It's incredible power. It is an absolute revolution, fundamentally 10x, 100x improvement in money. Um, Preston and Andy, thank you guys so much for joining us, for giving your time. We've been here for several hours, starting from the beginning of the show uh, to now. So, I, you know, very generous through time. Uh, everyone always loves to hear your insights and looking forward to doing the, uh, the Q1 2022 report. Thanks for having us, Brady. Thanks for all the awesome questions, everybody. How you doing, yeah, Tina? Great <laughs> Shout out, Tina. I see him down there. Shout yeah, out, let's Tina. work. We're going to keep this thing running for a little while longer um, so everyone can uh, say goodnight. Uh, make sure you follow Preston and Andy if you're not already. Uh, these guys know what's up and uh, good follows on Twitter. Thanks, gents. Thanks, Brady. Thank you, Preston. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you guys. Good night, guys. Thanks to Preston and Andy for joining us. You can find Preston on Twitter at Preston Pish, that's P-R-E-S-T-O-N-P-Y-S-H. And you can find Andy on Twitter at Edstrom Andrew, that's E-D-S-T-R-O-M-A-N-D-R-E-W. I am at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts at youtube.com slash swansignal and on the Twitter spaces broadcasts at swanbitcoin on Twitter. So head over to YouTube, subscribe, turn on notifications, head over to Twitter and subscribe there. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com. Swansignal is a production of Swan Bitcoin.